0: now, are you effing kidding me with JoJo from Juries?
1: I feel like we're not talking enough about the fact that the Alabama Supreme Court quoted the Bible and cited the wrath of God as their legal reasoning for why frozen embryos are, in fact, children. So much for it. the separation of church and state, right? The same state of Alabama which just executed Kenneth Smith via nitrogen gas asphyxiation would like you to know The frozen embryos are children because, as per the Bible, life cannot be destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. Here's the thing we all have to understand. The Dobbs decision has an extremely long tail, and that tail is not done swiping our rights away from us. Not by a mile. They're not going to stop with abortion, and this ruling in Alabama is an indication of that fact. They're coming for IVF already. They're also going to come for contraception. And if you think recreational sex isn't in their sights, boy, oh boy, would you be wrong? They believe that sex is for procreation only. And of course, we don't know what they do behind closed doors, but I have a funny feeling it's not what they're preaching for others. So much is at stake in this election. A lot of people like myself, I know I was among them, were pretty naive about Republicans overturning Roe. I just didn't think they would do it. I never thought they would. And I was fooled. And I won't be fooled again. My eyes are wide open. And I know that there is no end to their awfulness. And that is why we have to stop them. Well, on a happier note, I'm the luckiest girl in the world because this week, my guest is Dave Foley. Yes, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall. Comic, legend, genius, brilliant, incredibly funny human being is on my podcast today. And I cannot overstate how effing cool this is for me. When Kids in the Hall came out in 1988, I was in eighth grade and I was mesmerized immediately. I've never seen, I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never laughed so hard as I did watching it. I couldn't get enough. And it was one of the few times that my immediately bigger sister, because there's four of us in my family, it's one of the few times we ever really got along. We both were like, this, this is good. This is funny. And then we would talk about it, you know, other times. I still think about some of the sketches in my daily life to this day. So getting to talk to Dave was pretty mind blowing. Um, But also... Super enjoyable and really, really fun. Surprising. Like, I didn't know it would be fun, but it was just a different conversation. I mean, you know him from Kids in the Hall, but you also, of course, know he was on news radio with Phil Hartman, May He Rest in Peace, which is one of the most underrated sitcoms of all time. And now, of course, you can see him in Fargo's fifth season, which is critically acclaimed. And here's something you probably didn't know. He also has a podcast about what I call UFOs, but apparently they're called UAPs. Um, The podcast is called Really question mark, exclamation mark, period, with Tom and Dave. Honestly, I was not expecting to have as in-depth a conversation as we have about UAPs and aliens, but it's so effing interesting to me and, like, you know, a little scary. (laughs) And Dave knows a lot about this subject, so it's definitely a departure from my usual conversations that are very politically focused, but I could not get enough of the stuff he was talking about. I had an incredible time it just flew by, even though it's 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 not a short interview, um, but I was glued to my seat, and there's a moment where you'll know how on the edge of my seat I was um, because <laughs> I literally kind of jumped. So. Anyway, I can't wait till you guys watch and listen and then let me know what you think. And then I would love to have this bigger conversation about UAPs and aliens because I feel like there's a lot of stuff we should be talking about. A lot of stuff that I really never knew. Anyway, so um, yeah, enjoy and I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Welcome to the Are You Effing Kidding Me podcast, Dave Foley. Hi, Dave.
2: Hi. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay. This is, okay, everybody out there.
2: Thanks for welcoming me into your lovely home.
1: <laughs> yes. As my trolls like to say, my meth den. This is where I cook methamphetamines. This is where I do that right Right yeah. here. Yeah. This is where, like, they also like to say my kids were taken from me. That one's fun. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your trolls are awful. You're, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, I, you know, I follow you on the, on the, um, um, what what we used to happily call Twitter, uh,
1: I still call uh, it that. I can't stop calling
2: it. I that. know, I know. Well, X is so stupid. He's so stupid. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's like that's like, that's like a, just a nerdy kid in his basement trying to sound cool. I'm, I'm gonna call it X. X is cool.
0: I'm gonna take
2: yeah, this I put totally... X on my shirt. Yes. <laughs> I'm
0: gonna take the
1: totally recognizable, well branded. Thing that is accepted you know into yeah. just vernacular so much so that people say they're going to tweet still and i'm going to just call it
0: x
2: yeah and um, yeah and you know and uh i wish there was some way that the the uh absolutely fantastic uh classic la punk band could sue him over it right uh yeah
1: for, for bazillions of dollars yeah yeah yeah, but uh, um, the it's, the people get away with it. He he gets away with so much. You know, it's crazy, too, because, like, the accountability thing that seems to be lacking from people like him, people like, obviously, Donald Trump, but, like, mm-hmm. they're awful. It's awful. And it just yeah. keeps beating their awfulness. I agree. Yeah. But when I first discovered that you followed me, which is such a weird thing to say, because it sounds like a cult, like I, you're my follower, because I was your follower first. And then I said, I noticed you were following me. And I pretty much died dead because (laughs) like, I'm not kidding when I tell you, and it's weird to tell you this to your face through a computer screen, but still, they're like, I think I cut my comedy teeth, like what I thought of as funny in the world, on kids in the hall. So it's crazy to me that when I noticed you were following me first, I was like, whoa, wait, oh no, that's a lot. And then then I was like, well, I'm going to just reach out to him many years later and say like, hey, can you come on my podcast? Because why not? And then I was a total geek in doing that. But going back to the fangirling part, I'm serious. Like my sister and I, we never got along. She's the second, she's the closest in age to me. The only (laughs) thing we ever got along was when we were watching Kids in the Hall in 1988. Yeah.
2: That's nice. nice. I'm glad. I'm glad. and we could, t- we could force a little break in the fighting.
1: Right? And bringing the world together one comedy sketch at a time. Yeah. But 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 so for, for me, like I still think of so many sketches in like my daily life, like in just general daily life for me or any time I have coleslaw to this day. It's mm-hmm. it's 30 Helen's degree. And every time I'm opening coleslaw, I'm like, coleslaw deserves another chance. <laughs> but,
2: so, uh, yeah. And and I gotta say, coleslaw is one of my my two favorite foods. It is. Yeah, coleslaw and spaghetti. Those are my two favorite foods. Really. Yeah.
0: Well, that's say- not
2: necessarily at the same time, but but all, but I will. I'll have all the side of coleslaw with a plate of spaghetti. No, you. There don't. you go. Oh, sure, I will. Yeah. Wait. I'll, I'm sorry. I'll have, I'll have coleslaw as is just a, a late night snack.
1: Well, that's one thing. And my daughter, she loves coleslaw, and she will eat it all the time, including when, like, she wakes up food, like, sleepwalking, mm-hmm. she eats, too. Coleslaw's good. I will give you that. But the coleslaw on the side of spaghetti, I just, oh. I'm sorry.
2: You know, they're just, you know, they're just, uh, they don't go well together, but they're both my favorites.
1: So, <laughs> so, so like, on your birthday, you're like, I'm going to have my favorite things that I'm going to have. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. um. <laughs> That is interesting, but it also I don't know because is maybe Canadians are not known for their you know epicurean expertise necessarily. So maybe that.
2: No, well, it's worse. I'm in, I'm of English origin, so oh god, uh, my mom was English, so uh, yeah. So uh, food is does food. Enjoying food doesn't come naturally to me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's food. Food is something that you just get through. You just you just. You know, you know, stiff upper lip, eat, eat, eat the damn Yorkshire pudding and don't complain.
1: I, I lived in Ireland for a, a minute in my life. And the first time we went to anywhere they had breakfast, they had pudding on the menu. And I was like, oh, I like pudding.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then
1: that's not what came on my plate. Well,
2: oh. oh, I know. Oh, no, no. I, well, I, I remember my first time having breakfast in London. Um, and ordering, you know, eggs and toast. And uh, I neglected to specify, I don't want my toast fried.
1: Oh, do they cook it and really well?
2: Done? They fried it. They fried the toast in uh, bacon fat.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Was it? But was it bad? I mean, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. It was
2: delicious. It... <laughs> it was just, you know, it just took a year off of my life. That's all. <laughs>
1: exactly. Every meal is just yeah. chipping away. Well, I remember when we got off the plane in Shannon Airport and you know, you're you're like jet lagged, and, you know, everything feels weird. And my now ex-husband was there and he's like, We want something to eat. And I was like, I want a coffee and a bagel. That's what I want. I said like, coffee and a bagel. Huh. And he comes back and I'm like, What is that? And he's like, That's a scone. I'm like, what is a scone? <laughs> He's <laughs> like this is what they have here. They don't have bagels, and then he hands me my cup, and I'm like, "What is that?" And he's like, "It's tea."
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Where am I? Get me back on the plane immediately because yeah. this is not no. But I got used yeah. to it, sort of. But still, a bagel, a bagel, and a coffee is way better. No offense to anybody.
2: No. Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, let me let me put my 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 phone on do not disturb. Oh, sorry. There yeah. we go. There, there, there we go.
1: Just fair warning, my kids and school at three and no matter what day of the week it is or where they're supposed to be going, they will call me. So something's going to blow up here. So I'll turn on, but yeah. it will still blow up nonetheless. And my kids will be like, what are you doing? Where are you? Because
2: yeah. they're on your VIP list, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah, my daughter. Yeah, my daughter. If my daughter calls, yeah, it'll come through.
1: Exactly. But... <laughs> exactly. And um, yeah, my kids will be like, I don't care who you're talking to. I want need five dollars. I want to buy an empanada. It's like, what? that's not <laughs> an emergency. Um, but back to <laughs> back to <laughs> yeah. 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 Here's the thing the kids in the hall too. There are a million things about it. Um, it holds up still, which is not true. good. Do you? I mean, do you think? So? Do you ever go back and like? Do you ever go back and watch the old sketches?
2: Very rarely. Uh, sometimes it's when I'm trying to remember one for if we're going to perform it. Um, but yeah, very rarely watch the old show. Although, although uh, it yeah, I got it. I, I got to gotta say, every once in a while, um, I I've watched a little bit, and I'm always surprised. I'm always surprised. There's so many sketches I've forgotten about. Yeah. Uh, whenever I do watch an episode, that there are uh, that I go, oh, I don't remember this sketch, and I wrote it. Wow. Um, yeah. To, but yeah, I, I think it's nice. Uh, I guess one thing is like we never did topical stuff, which was by design,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we, uh, you know, we never did. We didn't do parody, um, which would also like sort of lock you into a certain time frame. Yeah, so I guess we, 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 I mean, we, we kind of, kind of decided really early on that we were going to just write about sort of general human interaction would be our would be our subject matter.
1: But in a weird way, it was ahead of its time, too, because some of the like general subject matter, you know, was then stuff that people didn't really talk about. You know what I mean? The, there's this like sort of dark component to so many of the particular the parents, which I always found so fascinating coming from coming from a situation where my mom was at least I mean, at best, not ideal. So I, I that was always something that really resonated with me. And that was a really interesting choice progressive sort of choice forward-leaning choice
2: well we our parents did us the favor of all being awful uh (laughs) it's awesome good job yeah yeah i mean my to be fair my mom wasn't awful she was just english um (laughs) it wasn't she had an she had an actual impairment Uh, (laughs) uh but but yeah but my dad was awful uh most of the kids we all had like terrible dads alcoholic dads abusive dads and you know, or you know, or uh, distant moms. You know, yeah. So it was, yeah. We all had, we all had, just dreadful parents. You
1: know, <laughs> and that's and thus, great comedy was born.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was kind of you know, we were one of the things we we could bond over uh, over finding our uh, childhoods hilarious as opposed to being thinking them sad.
1: Which is interesting because it's sort of like you know. As a child, you know, abuse, these are the things that you kind of have to, to do to cope, right? I mean, not to get yeah. deep in, like, you know, introspective, but still there is something, some truth to that.
2: Yeah, well, and there's also, there's an inherent absurdity to, to awful behavior, mm-hmm. you know? There's like, like you know, it's like terrible, like in fiction, terrible people are always so interesting um, and often hilarious, you know? Uh, you know, like, you know, like, like W.C. W. Fields his whole persona was being awful um, and it was hilarious, you know, same, you know, same with Bradshaw Marks, really, you yeah. know, he was a terrible person, his comic <laughs> character.
1: Right. But, right. But you're right. The absurdity of it, because sometimes you're like, how are you this way? You ha- it's, it's sort of inherently funny in its awfulness, which is a strange thing yeah. That's true.
2: Yeah. Well, because it, because it, it goes against how you're, what is expected? What is a, what is supposed to be the norm of behavior? So the, you know things that things that uh, uh, I guess diverge from 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 what you're expecting are usually you know funnier than um, you know the, the people who behave as as you as they should. It's hard, to, yeah. it's hard to get a lot of laughs on someone who just does the
1: right thing. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, oh, you're, okay, yeah, you're crossing all yeah. those seas and dotting all the that. time, that's fun. But, like, like that's the other thing, too, about Kids in the Hall was that so much of the comedy, With all of it, really, was so completely unexpected. Like, it, sometimes, I know you I started as troops, as two troops that kind of came together, Um, and where the origin Point is for some of this stuff it's just like it's kind of mind-blowing like for instance you know where does the head crusher guy come from
0: <laughs> well, that yeah
2: that yeah well that was uh that was uh Ke- kevin and mark uh, i guess the, uh, the story i hear and the, and the, they could be lying um <laughs> they usually are uh mm-hmm. but that they were out on a double date uh back before we had a tv show and with two women that were not liking them at all um, and so in the middle of the date, Mark just started doing that, <laughs> like, he just started going, I'm caressing your head at, at, the people, at the people that are on the date with. And Kevin remembered that years later and said, oh, that was funny. We should do that. And, uh, so, so, so it was Mark's original instinct. And then it was Kevin that remembered it. Oh my God. It's often Kevin's job is to remember things.
0: Really? Yeah. <laughs> That's his job.
2: Yeah. Yeah. What's
1: your What's yours?
2: Well, I, well I'm, my, job is to actually, my job used to be to actually remember the dialogue um, from all of our sketches because when, when we used to do our club show, we never wrote anything down because uh, we, really, we would write an hour of material every week. So, we didn't have time to write it down and script it. We would just sort of work it all out on our feet and then perform it. So, so we, never had, we never had scripts or anything. Uh, and I was the only one that could ever remember how the sketches went when we, like, like months later, would decide we'd repeat one.
1: <laughs> which is funny because my favorite sketch of all time is Citizen Kane. Like that is I'm yeah. honest to God. I, I'm, again, I probably play that sketch in my head once a week, just randomly. I have no idea why I'll just play it in my head once a week. And, and, you, and <laughs> you're the one to remember the dialogue in the in the group, but in the sketch.
2: <laughs> yeah. That's right? it out. Well, that's it's, Yeah. And that sketch, uh, for, that sketch took as long to write as it takes to perform. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kevin and I wrote that we we met with Kevin Scott and I we met at Le Select Sandwich on Dundas Street to write um and uh we wrote that sketch, yeah, literally it you know Kevin and I just sort of improvised it and it was pretty much we never changed a word of it after that. Uh and then we wrote another sketch with Scott that we, that that was so bad we uh we actually did try to do it on the TV show But we did it in the early performance, and then by the second show, we can't. We pulled it from the the running order.
1: (laughs) That's hysterical. I mean, that's the thing about like improv. It's just, I mean, I it's it's, Henry Winkler. You and I were talking about him really quickly before we started recording. I mean, Henry Winkler did improv too, and it's it builds up like a totally different skill set that you can do that. That you can just kind of create an entire scene on the fly and never have to really like hash it out it's just it's just something that you can do
2: yeah well it's when it when it works yeah it's great and uh no and it's true well the thing is it gets you that uh it it breaks down the uh the sensor inside you know it breaks down that part of you that goes uh no no not that not that and you know you where you just say the next thing you know and then you just follow idea after idea after idea and and sometimes it's terrible but Mm -hmm. but sometimes it uh you know it 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 gives you, uh, I think it gives you people that that study improv, I think it gives them a a speed at writing that you wouldn't have otherwise.
1: Right, like an efficiency, I guess, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. you learn to sort of go stream of consciousness, and then you you can go back and fix things later.
1: Right. And and I was watching the documentary, and in the beginning of, you know, when you guys were together uh, and doing these improv shows live, I mean, Bruce McCullough said, like, there was a lot of failure. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Although really not as I, you know, not <laughs> I as much as Bruce thinks. But Bruce just thought Bruce just thought every sketch that wasn't his was a failure. Is the uh, and still does. Um, that's yeah, that's funny because it would. Yeah, there would always be that thing where we'd go. Uh, you know, we'd do the show, and then at the end of the show, you know, everyone would think that, that their sketches were the ones that, that were hits. Really, <laughs> and just, I'd say I'd say we had a remarkable success rate on those club shows. Yeah. Like we rarely ever bombed. On, I
1: mean, what a, what an incredible thing that must have been for people to behold because, I mean, the, the energy alone had to have been – I mean, the, people weren't doing stuff like that.
2: No, no. Especially in those days, it was uh, – because the whole notion of, like, alt comedy didn't exist yet. Um, right. You know, and in Toronto, there was basically – if you're doing – there was Yuck Yucks, which was the stand-up club. And then there was uh, Second City Theater in toronto and uh and that was kind of it it was just there was second city and yuck yucks and then and then there was a whole bunch of people uh copying second city a whole bunch of s- sketch review shows all over town you know where they you know they would have a piano player and they'd sing songs about the mayor and uh and there was and you know as a sort of punky young man we all thought we hated all that um and uh you know we you know we decided we wanted to do a show that was less polite, you know, where, where we had actually swear on stage or, you know, and or get drunk on stage, and, really? you know, and uh, you know, and we, and we did, you know, we just sort of didn't follow any of the rules of, of uh, performance that we were told were essential
1: at the time. And, and that, I mean, that's really, truly groundbreaking, but it makes me ask this question, which is like, what were the, who were the comedians or the like shows you were watching that made you, you know, want to pursue comedy. What what did you think was funny
2: growing up? Oh well then well growing up I loved I loved I mean, you know, that's probably one of the first comedians I really remember watching was oddly Jerry Lewis uh-huh. as a kid. Like I loved Jerry Lewis movies. I used to I'm I'm talking like when I was like four or five years old. Mm-hmm. I would I would try to go out and do Pratt falls that I saw Jerry Lewis doing. <laughs> You know, so I would, wait, well, I would, go do tumbles down the flight of stairs. Oh you know,
1: even yeah, at four, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. literally just throwing yourself down the stairs.
2: Yeah, and uh, so I'd just, you know, do it for a laugh. Um, and but then, uh, you know, quickly, I think, I think I also was like watching Monty Python from the time I was like six, seven years old. Um, but I was also a huge fan of the Marx Brothers, um, uh, Laurel and Hardy, um. Then then, you know, then as I got a little older, I mean, my family, we were kind of, the only thing we did together was watch comedy in my family. Hmm. Um, Well, and hockey. We all watched
0: hockey. (laughs) Right,
2: But but Yeah, but we, you know, watching things like All in the Family and MASH and Mary Tyler Moore's show. I mean, those were like, those were the family gatherings when I was a kid. Um, And
1: and those are great shows. I mean, comedically, they're great shows. Yeah.
2: Oh, great. I think they're, yeah, great, amazing pieces of art, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some of the some of the greatest sort of cult- cultural achievements uh of the 20th century, I'd say.
1: And definitely boundary pushing as well, same with yeah. what I mean, you guys are.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think um yeah, I mean, I think Norman Lear you could uh, you know, put him up there with uh Andrew Gibson, you know, <laughs> as a as a writer, you know, the the things that he did. Yeah. You know.
1: And you definitely get a sense of the, I mean, the, I the Monty Python thing I can see because sort of that same energy, it, it, where you're you're not sure if everything is really scripted or if it isn't scripted. But and that that I I could see that as well.
2: Yeah, well, Python was just the the anarchy of Python. Mm-hmm. I think I think appealed to all of us, and to the to the extent that one of the main things we we talked about was uh, how important was that we, that we should not be anything like Python,
0: <laughs> right.
2: You know, because, you know, there are things like, because because we love Python, when we started uh, doing our comedy, we pretty much said, okay, all of our sketches have, have beginning, middles, and ends.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because Python, they didn't. They didn't end their sketches ever, right. <laughs> you know. Right. In fact, you know, to the point, like, if they ever did do an actual punchline to a sketch, they would highlight it. They would have a big, like, sign coming out that says punchline, <laughs> you know, and they would mock the fact that they did a punchline. <laughs> right. You know, so, so when we were doing us, we said, well, we can't do that. We can't, we can't do our, our, we had basically went back to more like a Carol Burnett structure of sketch comedy, what, you know?
1: Yeah. And so, that's interesting too, because that, that for me too, as a kid was always on. And it was a show that, I mean, that was very traditional sketch comedy, but it did yeah. beginning, middle and end, but always oh, a great punchline.
2: And it was great. I know. And the rating on that show was fantastic. And there were a great, such great performers. And, uh, so yeah, Carol Burnett was a big influence on me, you know, and I think either, probably on all of us. I think we all grew up watching Carol Burnett, uh, you know, uh, which was a thrill. I actually got, to, I actually, I actually played poker once with Harvey Corman and was really so I was very excited by that.
1: Oh my god, <laughs> that sounds incredible! Yeah,
2: yeah, which is really cool.
1: I so see I, were you having like a moment, like I'm having. <laughs> You're really
2: Oh my god! Oh, it was there's this. There's this great guy Norby Walters has the, had this poker game uh, that have been running forever, and uh, I got invited to be uh, to, to be a part of young Hollywood at the table, like when I was young Hollywood uh, so back when I was doing news radio. Uh, Norby started inviting me out, and it was like you know it'd be like me and John Favreau, and you know got you know that that generation would be the young guys at the table. Mm. But I got to play with Harvey Corman, I got to play with uh, Connie Stevens. Uh, Charles Durning uh, and uh, um, and oh my God, I'm, I'm blanking on one of my favorite actors of all time, Jim Rockford.
1: Um, Who's Jim Rockford? I, I don't know who that is.
2: The Rockford Files. Oh, oh my the God. The
1: Rockford Files. Okay, see James, now.
2: James Garner. Oh my God.
1: James Garner. I'm like James okay. Garner. That's James just Garner. I nice. know. Right
2: That's a, a mental problem I have with with proper names.
1: Yes, yeah, I have a mental lots of mental problems.
2: But, yeah, I got to play with, like, James Garner was one of my, my big, my, one of my favorite actors of all time, you know, because I grew up watching the Rockford Files and, you know, and watching Maverick, you know, in in old reruns. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, Oscar, uh, got just Joe Bologna, um, just amazing people were all in this poker game, you know.
1: And is the fact that you're playing poker kind of an icebreaker at least or that you have this um it's like a having something to do with your hands like it you, yeah. yeah,
2: and then we were playing when we were playing seven card stud, which is the most boring game on earth um and, <laughs> and I'm a terrible poker player too <laughs> um so uh but it was but as I said, it was just to get uh, to meet all these amazing people like all these like people that were heroes of mine, yeah. you know was pretty pre- it was you know one, one of my favorite yeah and i was definitely starstruck by all of those people
1: i'm sure but yeah. you you were young Hollywood, <laughs> yeah young. now yeah, a bunch of people would sit at a table with you and be like oh my god I'm yeah, i know he's he's still alive <laughs> <laughs> i have no idea is that the guy from Bugs life wait yeah, yeah it is right <laughs> yeah oh say, say something from the movies
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, for me, explaining to my kids, because like I was telling, I, I tell them all this stuff where I'm like, I can't believe this is my life. I can't believe I get to do this stuff. This is like surreal. And they've known about the the, the opportunity to talk to you since the first time you answered my ridiculous DM, which was just really was silly. And and so this morning, I was like, guys, today's the day I'm going to interview Dave Foley. And they was like, who's that? You know, and I was like, oh, remember the guy from Bug's Life. And he's like, oh. That's the same thing.
2: You know, my daughter says the same thing. Really? <laughs> who who
1: are you again, dad? Aren't Wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. That's a daughter's job. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah.
1: They got to keep you humble. <laughs> like, yeah.
2: yeah, I which I think I think is a terrible job. I think.
1: There's <laughs> Why a place not just, worship yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: I feel like yeah. you put enough in that, that 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 till that you you should be getting worship now. Explicitly. Oh, I know.
2: Okay. Well, I used to have to like every uh, like my daughter, when she was a, a tween, like every tween in America, uh, watched, uh, binge watched every episode of uh, Friends on Netflix. It was on Netflix. I don't know if your kids did that.
1: Um, they're a little younger. They're, yeah. A they're, little they're younger. They're yeah. It's tweens now. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, every, when she was a tween, she's now 20, almost 21. Um, like every kid in the world seemed to be watching Friends all of a sudden. Mm. And I, of course, every time she'd be watching it, I go, you know, you know hun, dad had a show at the same time as this. <laughs> You know, if you ever wanted to watch that, <laughs> that you
1: know. ew, gross. I wouldn't want to do that. Wait, are yeah. you on Friends? Did you know any of
2: them? <laughs> yeah, that at least I I could tell her that. That was impressed. So <laughs> right. you know, I know all those guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, okay, now like you're a little bit cool, but yeah, uh-huh. and and interestingly, like no offense again to anybody, Friends was fine. Fine, That's perfectly fine. Oh, no, fine yeah. show. But if you if you were to ask me, you know what's funnier than the other thing—not that it's the competition—but I mean, friends never made me laugh in a memorable, like hold on to it for the rest of my life kind of way, like kids in the hall did. So for oh. me, anyway. Well, I mean, I'm sure other people would argue something else, but for me, yeah, still very much true.
2: No, i I no, I I'll take that compliment. I'm very yeah. We're a, I mean, I'm very proud of. Kids in the Hall,
1: yeah, you know, and,
2: oh, and and news radio. After that, I was very proud of that too. Yeah, right.
1: And that's another thing. That's one of those shows. that's the that people. It's like when you ask people, and I saw this, I think on your Twitter, we asked you ask people, like, what are the most sort of memorable underrated comedy shows of all time? It's one of those that that people are like. Oh my god, news radio! How did I not put that on my? How long did that show run for? for a while.
2: We did. We did five years. Wow. But, but we did five years. But the uh, the guy in charge of scheduling at NBC hated the show, so he kept trying to kill it. And uh, so he kept moving the show every time we'd become every time we'd get up into hit territory, he'd move the show again. So we had like eight time slots in five years. Oh my God. Yeah. That's
1: terrible. That's And what a cast. I mean, yeah. Working my feelings on Joe Rogan aside, I mean, the rest of the cast yeah. is really is a, it's truly remarkable. And rest in peace, Phil Hartman, who's a legend. But it's an yeah. incredible cast. It was a great cast.
2: And Joe, Joe was great on, on News, on News yeah. Radio. Very funny. <laughs> Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, look. I mean, we also had Andy. You know, so, right, right. I mean, you know, you know, much much more problematic. You know, and yeah. then yeah, yeah but yeah, you know, like, more more tyranny and Steve Rood and Vicky and Candy Alexander. I mean, yeah, it's like you know, just you know, there was su- they were such ju- also just a great bunch of people to hang out with. Even you know, even Andy at the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, we all had so much fun together. Like we were like, we we never, like nobody ever wanted to go home when we were making those shows.
1: That's, that's cool. One of the things that I also learned about you that I didn't know that kind of stems from what you're talking about in your relationship or friendship with Joe Rogan is this, I had no idea about the whole UFO thing. I had no idea that you had a UFO podcast. I had no idea how often you talk about UFOs or all this stuff because I'm, this is fascinating to me because I'm, I'm always riveted by anything related to this topic. So yeah. so I've heard you say that one of the... the oh, well, I may should just let you say it. Okay, let me just say this. You have a UFO podcast. I do, yes. Really? Right? Yeah. With Tim and Dave, or Dave and Tim. Uh, Tom, uh,
2: Tom. Tom. Tom and
1: Dave. Tom and Dave. Okay, okay. Joe. There you go. Yeah. See, I told you I have name mission yep. things, too. Me,
2: too.
0: <laughs> Tell yeah, me.
2: Real, about it's it? really with Tom and Dave. Yeah, and it's... um yeah, it's it's uh, and and again, it's also weirdly that's one of the the areas where I get starstruck still. Like, I re- we went to uh, as a well, result, we went to something called the Soul Foundation Symposium in, at Stanford University that Gary Nolan put on, who's a, a molecular biologist. Um, so I was up there, and all these giants of the UFO world were there, and I was totally starstruck by that. <laughs> that's funny. Um yeah, I was there with like uh uh my ex-wife and uh, is our producer on the on the podcast. So so the three of us are up there and I just kept going, you hey, know that is that's Russell Targ. Oh my god, Russell Targ, oh how put up is here. Chacfil is here.
0: <laughs> Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free?
2: Um but uh yeah, the well the u f o thing was um uh, one of those things like i I don't know if you well you said you're interested in this subject or, yeah. or...
1: no, I mean, i've yeah i mean i i could tell you real quick when you're my story when you sort of tell your oh, tell me your
2: story then'll yeah. i then', I'll, then I'll...
1: okay, well, so okay real quick, so this is really about me, I mean, you're on my yeah. podcast, yeah, I can talk about myself, that's kind of how this works, so um <laughs> no, i you're also old enough to remember this um. When I was, I think it was probably about eleven, I had my first job. I know that sounds crazy, but I had my first job. I was under the books. I was working at like a. It was a crossover of an Irish goods and teddy bear store. Um, yeah, yeah, and so we never had any business, and so I would sit there and read all weekend long. And one of the books I read was Contact. I think it was called Contact, right? Yeah, yeah, and had like yeah, a, that's the,
2: the that you mean the um the, the book by uh, what's his name.
1: Uh, I don't remember his name, but it's not Carl Sagan. No, it Carl Sagan. No, Carl Sagan, right? I'm not sure. It was the one with the iconic kind of like white, that egg shape, like elongated elongated alien face. Are oh, you thinking of communion? Communion, that's it. Communion. That's the Whitley Strieber. Yeah. Okay, sorry, Con- I'm mixing up my alien
2: movie. The Contact. Now. Yeah, Contact was the uh Carl Sagan book that they okay. made him do a movie with Jodie Foster.
1: Jordan Foster. Okay. Yeah. See now, see the name thing. I'm doing it too. Yeah. Communion. That's what I yeah. was reading. So I think that was around, like, 84. My, maybe. I'm not sure. Sh- yeah,
2: I I think so. Yeah. I can't remember.
1: So, sorry. Communion, right. And I mm. read it in a weekend because I was absolutely riveted by it. And um, then I had my best friend Karen read it. And then we became obsessed with seeing things because we were like, w- w- I want to s- see something. So we lived in Sussex County, New Jersey, which is basically like um, West Virginia version here. It's very open and rural and she lived on a big farm and she had you know, a huge starry sky and so we were just sitting there one night like hoping and waiting for something to happen like we were going to will this thing to happen and sure enough this like orange streak just goes across the sky that wasn't a shooting star. We'd seen a million of those. It wasn't a plane. It wasn't It wasn't the size of anything we'd ever seen. We were both like, did you just, did you just? And she's like, uh-huh. And I was like, wait, what was that? And we had no idea. So my dad came to pick me up. I told her I was like, you're crazy. That didn't happen, whatever. I go to my 11-year-old job the next day and the radio's playing. And <clears throat> the radio announcer's like, all these people are calling in. They all saw this really strange unidentifiable object last night and we've checked with the local airports. We've asked in the news, no one knows, no record of it, but like hundreds of people were calling in to say that they'd seen this thing. And I, the thing I saw. So from that point on, I was like, okay, I need to, this is great. I really do believe that's what we saw. And so it's always captured my interest and a little bit of fear and apprehension as well. So that's, that's sort of my story. And that's why I find, I do believe hundred percent, but I don't have anything other than that personally, to kind of go on.
2: Yeah, well, well it, there is a lot more. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but yeah, well, you know, like, like in particular, like the Hudson Valley region is like one of the most active places on Earth for UFO sightings and <laughs> continues to be. Um, well, a lot of it, well, there's two nuclear power plants in the area. And uh, a lot of of UFO sightings seem to be linked to nuclear power plants or nuclear weapons installations. Um, oh. yeah, and um, you know, so I mean, it's it's weird because I I mean I started I mean I was always interested in, when I was a little kid I watched this TV series called UFO which is a British show um, set in the far future of uh, 1983 <laughs> uh, and you know and it was cool it was very futuristic all the People wore jumpsuits and all the cars had gull wing doors <laughs> and uh so it was uh and uh and there were these sort of conical shaped, you know, UFOs that were constantly attacking Earth and they were being fought off by this secret organization. So that was like my first uh introduction to the notion of UFOs, you know, and then so then I was sort of interested in it through throughout my life and would like hear the stories. You know in the 70s you know there were all the stories and then of course close encounters came out and oh, yeah. that 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 drew a lot of you know interest to the subject and then um you know but it would go my like how much i would pay attention would go up and down through life um and then in like 97 when i was doing news radio uh, the phoenix lights happened which was like one of the largest you know mass sightings uh, on record where like over like a three hour period, a huge um, sort of uh, triangular shaped or delta shaped craft slowly traveled over uh, Arizona, over the city of Phoenix, like like over and it's tracked over like a 200 mile path. Hmm. And, uh, you know, witnesses were saying it was, you know, about the size of a football field.
0: Hmm.
2: And this this went. Um, this happened in 97. You know, I was making news radio and. and and Joe Rogan and I, at the time, we talked about it quite a bit. We talked about UFOs in general and aliens. Um, and then the, gov- and the government's explanation for it was just ridiculous. You know, They said it was, there, was, there were illumination flares dropped by the military. And you go, okay, well, I'm, I absolutely believe that the military did go up and drop illumination flares so that they could later say it was illumination flares. Hmm. But that doesn't explain thousands of people who saw a solid craft flying flying over uh phoenix um and then eventually it came out uh that you know even the even the governor of arizona fife Symington, was somebody who witnessed it and he was a pilot and he looked at it and he knew that was not a human bit of technology oh. um right so that so so that got me you know interested uh, i didn't know about the fife Symington thing till years later but um
1: a little bit of eye conditioning because I don't remember the phoenix lights.
2: No, well that's the thing it's it's uh <gasps> Yes I do. Yeah, it was it was big. It was in the news for quite a while. I until didn't... of course yeah and yeah until until the uh until the press, you know, took the government's explanation said, "Oh, let's ignore it now." Do you remember it now?
1: Yeah, that's such a trip because the social conditioning component that I know you're going to talk about that I yeah. that I know that I that I didn't remember this but now looking at it that I and then it just seemed to disappear from my mind,
2: yeah well that's the that yeah that is the social conditioning is that uh you know they they you know the government very cleverly and carefully created an atmosphere where
1: uh is the dog back
2: people, people, <laughs> yes you can hear his toenails clicking
1: yeah, he needs to come back in
2: yeah no no he, he's he, yeah i've left the door but he can come and go
1: oh, okay i was gonna say my dog she'll do that she'll go outside and then she's immediately back the door scratching to come back in
2: yeah no that's just him walking around he's the noisiest toenails on earth
1: <laughs>
0: sorry
2: and he's got these weird little legs that he drags forward as he walks so it's like uh hears. yes you hear it as he you know, every stride is <laughs> is l- way louder than it need be yeah there he goes outside <laughs> again you uh,
1: make everyone know where he is at all times,
2: and he comes up and he gives me this look. Speaking of influences, he comes up and looks at me with this Buster Keaton face, <laughs> you know. And he looks, like he looks like Buster Keaton, you know. <laughs> yeah, so he comes up. <laughs> uh,
1: so <laughs> you, mean, you have to write a children's book about your talk some point, yeah, please. My um, dog, the,
2: re- the reincarnation of Buster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so so. So, so these lights, this made you interested and you were but, Yeah, and,
2: it made me think seriously about it and think seriously about, you know, especially when when the press dropped it because they heard this, you know it's uh, you know, I guess around the same around that same time there was also like a big sighting at Chicago O'Hare Airport that that, that got news coverage for a couple of days and then uh, and then the, the press dropped it. Um, but so that, t- that I took that pretty seriously. And then a couple of years later, the French, the French put out a, something called the Cometa report, uh, which was, um, a study done by a joint study done by the military police department, psychologists, um, scientists and studying the UFO problem in, in France. And at the end of their study, they put out this report called the Cometa Report, in which they basically said, UFOs are real, and the most likely explanation is an uh, extraterrestrial. And so, I thought, that seems important.
0: <laughs> right?
2: And again, again, z- zero zero traction in the media. Yeah, I don't remember uh, that. Yeah. No, no one does. Especially in America, no one does. Uh, oddly enough... Uh, a woman who late, I would later become friends with, uh, Leslie Kane, was one of the only people that wrote about the Cometa report when it came out hmm. um, as a journalist back back in I guess it was two thousand three. When I think when it came out, and then again, so so I, that got me thinking. And then, but then it was only like about ten years ago I, I saw a documentary called Out of the Blue by James Fox, and uh, and it was the first time I'd seen something that was kind of comprehensively covered sort of historical cases uh, interviewed really credible military and government witnesses from all over the world um, and you know and it was narrated by Peter coyote so that made it sound serious right <laughs> you know and it was and it was like a pretty low budget documentary that this guy James Fox made um, you know but it was but it was great and it just covered a lot of historical stuff that I didn't know about and a lot of really credible stories and witnesses that I wasn't aware of and that got me going home and after watching that watching that like late at night by myself it was one of the things where I went oh boy I (laughs) need to really take this seriously (laughs) and then uh so then I started looking for other sources of information I started like like trying to find like I found like podcasts that seemed serious you know uh you know uh, a guy named Brian Sprague and uh Alejandro uh, Rojas and Martin Willis people like that and then you know and then just started looking at it then I've then I've found this the book that Leslie Kane had written all about I can never remember the title of it but it's you know but it's like uh, fighter fighter pilots government officials you know blah uh, go on the record about UFOs it's by mm-hmm. Leslie who who later wrote the uh, the 2017 New York Times article with Ralph Bloom it's all about UFOs um but so I read that book and just start sort of, you know, going back and, and taking all the things that I kind of dismissed as being crazy before and looking at them again and more seriously and going, oh my, wow, this is, uh, this is a way bigger uh, issue than I was thinking it was, you know? So yeah, and-
1: Questions, but like, what, like, why do you think, why do you think, I mean, I could... Speculate, why Why doesn't the government want us knowing, talking about? And is the press complicit? Or is it that they just don't think we have the capacity for these stories? Because I feel like we waited we our whole lives for confirmation of aliens and then we get it all the time. And they're like, nope, mm-mm, moving on. Yeah. Well, I think,
2: well, the government, I mean, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, people, it's just conjecture, but uh, I think it's pretty good conjecture is that one of the reasons um, is that uh, it's not something they can really readily admit to because they'd be having to admit that there's uh, something flying in our airspace that we have no defenses against. And that's not something the military likes to admit to. Certainly Mm -hmm. not something. And the governments, they don't really want to admit to uh, the notion that there's uh, perhaps a superior species on earth uh because p- maybe people won't take our governments as seriously
0: mm-hmm.
2: if you know and and there's also i mean you know recently we had kind uh, of david grush came forward as a whistleblower and um sh- saying that uh the u.s also not only do ufos exist not only are they real but now the uh, story is out that uh the government has uh, programs to retrieve UFOs and to reverse engineer them.
1: Whoa.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's a big story.
1: Yeah. Whoa.
2: And one of the reasons that that's secret is because uh, we're worried that another country will figure it out 1st and like whatever country figures out how this technology works, and and basically, yeah, that the the Russians have also retrieved uh, UFOs, and have been trying to reverse engineer them. The Chinese have, um, so they're, uh, and whoever whoever figures out how it works, uh, it's sort of game over for everyone else,
1: right. Right, like there's no borders in in space that it's like you you can't yeah. claim that because that one is part of see right here that's part of the United States. It shows right here on this map.
2: <laughs> yeah, and if you you know, and if and yeah, like if, and if the Chinese have technology that that we have zero defenses against, then yeah, they will just do what they want to do, and we you know, and our you know, our system of government will end. You know,
1: it's interesting. So the... So that so then also that begs the question that they're what are they doing when they're here, and why are they here? And they're just observing us because they're not interacting really, right? And why are they only sort of reveal themselves in certain situations versus others? Like how come they're not just either all out all the time or like is there is there one that's just like drunk and they accidentally left the lights on? Like yeah,
2: well, they are inter- well, they are interacting with us if you if you look at the uh, the abductee phenomenon. Oh
1: right, right.
2: You know, like there's and community you know, talks about that too. Yeah, well, that's what that's a, it's all about Whitley. Right. Whitley, we had Jay Whitley on the podcast just uh, a little while ago. Don't um,
1: tell them I got their name wrong. That's <laughs> all right. Yeah.
2: And but uh, you know, I mean, this it's possibly millions of people have been abducted. Um, and um, <laughs> and and there's something very strange to it. I mean, I mean, you had I mean, some like, you know, Harvard's psychiatrist John mack the head of Harvard psychiatry took the subject very seriously and interviewed a lot of uh abductees and basically came to the conclusion these people are perfectly sane they've had an experience that is real and uh you know and traumatizing and uh that needs that needs we need to figure it out mm. you know and now that I mean, i'd say a lot of most people like in the UFO field now think that it's uh, use the term non-human intelligence instead of extraterrestrial because there's no, we don't know that, that it's necessarily from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. There's the notion that it's just always been here that there's just a a superior species that's always been on earth with us, interacting with us, you know, that may be the source of uh, all of our religions. (laughs) And uh, yeah, you know, that maybe, you know, it is, one of those things where we go, oh well, maybe the Greek gods actually existed, right? You know that that was the the Greeks' way of interpreting what they were encountering,
0: right? Because
2: you know, they they invented these gods, um, you know, and then we all, you know, and, and throughout history, different cultures interacting with, um, you know, uh, you know, I guess we call them UAPs now, the unexplained phenomenon. Um, have all interpreted them as some sort of gods and their, uh, their interactions with us as miracles. And, you know, yeah. you know, cause his uh, Arthur, Arthur uh, C. Clark said, any significantly advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. Right. So, so we're now, I mean, we're interacting with this technology now and uh, we're, and we're of course viewing it as from a scientific perspective, Mindset,
0: mm-hmm. you
2: know, in terms of craft, and uh, you know, and trying to determine what species this is or what's going on. Uh, but in the past, yeah, you would, but and naturally, you would, you would ascribe it to something magical and mm-hmm. supernatural.
1: And, and do you think it's a commentary, sort of, on society as a whole that these things are not like? like, oh, my God, you guys, there was this story about spaceships and this thing that we, we I think as a kid, like, we, I mean, even as a young adult, but this would have been the biggest, I mean, how many movies were made where this was the biggest movies that could ever be yeah. on a whole planet. And now as a society, we're like, oh, they don't know. Those fighter pilots don't know what the thing that's spinning is doing or what it is. And oh, OK. Anyway, did you guys yeah. know what Trump was doing?
2: Yeah. Well, basically, people just go, well, I heard that was debunked. Yeah, that too. Yeah. That was debunked, right? I don't need, I don't need to pay attention, you know. (laughs) Right. It's all crazy. Right. Uh, Well, it it does speak to how, you know, the notion, I mean, we think we're, we we think we're smart and we think we have free will. Um, Mm. But, I mean, uh, it's pretty uh, obvious that that we can easily be manipulated. And like you said, is, is the press complicit? My view is they aren't complicit, but they are victims like the rest of us of a really well executed social conditioning program um, that, you know, this, I always refer to like Noam Chomsky's book, The Manufacturing Consent. Um, basically, all you have to do is create an environment where some things sensible people talk about and think about and some things they don't. And once you create that environment, you don't have to censor, you don't have to monitor anything because it's it's, uh, self-perpetuating at that point. You know, the press will will write dismissive articles about UFOs because they're sensible people who know that it isn't real. Mm -hmm. And because they know it isn't real, they won't look at any of the evidence that it is real. Uh, Same thing with the scientific community. They know that what these craft are doing is impossible. And since they know it's impossible, they don't need to look at the data showing that it's happening. You know, and uh, so, you know, And and Chomsky also said the easiest people to manipulate are intellectual elites because they they have the most at stake with staying in the community of intellectual elites. They don't want to be excluded,
0: Mm -hmm.
2: you know um you know i remember in, in the book i remember in chomsky one of the examples you know i twenty five, thirty gotten 25 30 years ago i guess at least 25 years ago, that he put forward of of the media um, uh, complying with the, the conditioning of what you what you think about and what you don't think about was going back to uh, the middle east when there was a potential agreement on the table but uh uh, between the uh, Palestinian Authority and Israel, and the Palestinian Authority rejected it, and everyone was saying there the PLO just will not accept success, will not take a win. And Noam Chomsky pointed out, but at the same time, not one newspaper published an actual map of the West Bank. Mm-hmm. And even today, okay. when you watch the coverage of of what's going on in in uh, Gaza and you know in Israel. Uh, They still keep showing the West Bank as this big block of blue space on the map. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that it it looks like a virus. You know, Mm -hmm. if you look at the actual map of it, that it's all just these little segments, little squiggles of land that are that are Palestinian land. And all in all of it in the middle of it all is all Israeli occupation. And there's Mm -hmm. no there's no contiguous land in the West Bank. Right. And Chomsky pointed out nobody, not one newspaper, and to, to this day, not one newspaper publishes the real map of the West Bank yeah. because that's not what what sensible people talk about.
1: I mean, it, it, it would explain... That You know, there's there's this two-sided slippery slope about people seeking information sources that are not, you know, the the, you know, the, the, the traditional news sources that we've always sort of gone to and trusted. Yeah. Increasingly, that's becoming the case where people are going outside of that. And that is a double-edged sword because you then have people who are both bad actors and intentionally mis- spreading misinformation and disinformation. And then you have people who yeah. even aim to be spreading disinformation and misinformation and people are putting too much trust in them. But at the same time the gatekeeping that is in place within traditional media i mean to speak st- to your point also related to maps but also this particular topic which is like yeah but see now i feel like i should have been seeking alternative sources of information because i wasn't being served well what you were saying it really is more reflective of reality and so that you that's how we kind of Get to this place now, where you can see where people are like, I don't trust mainstream media, so I yeah. seek other sources.
2: Yeah, and this—that's the trouble—is that, I mean, I mean, the truth is, mainstream media still has a better system. Yeah. Of you know, like it, when it when it's working properly, right? Of you know, then the notions of of multiple sources and checking your, you know, co- cross corroborating, you know, and uh, and and coming up and admitting when you're wrong. Those are the things that are supposed to be how press works. Yeah. It's just, you know, you know, the rules of journalism are good rules and they should work. Um, but, uh, but it is true. I mean, it's like, I mean, I mean, we've had far too many examples. I mean, the run up to the, the, the Iraq war, you know, mm-hmm. where, where, uh, and again, it's I have a slightly different perspective because I was in Canada, you know, <laughs> and we were, we were watching it, From below and going, why isn't anyone asking any questions? (laughs) Like we'd we'd watch the American press and just go, Why is no one's asking anything? (laughs) Why is everyone just saying, Oh, all the press is just piling on and going, Yes, we must defeat Saddam. Yeah. He is a threat. And I'd go, wait a second. (laughs) No, he was your guy weeks ago. (laughs) You know, you've been propping him up and supporting Mm him, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's you know, it's amazing. You know, and, it, and again, it's not a conspiracy. It's just that there, there there, are, you know, clear things that you talk about and that you don't. And if you talk about the things that no one else is talking about, you'll be ostracized by your peers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, um, you know, and then there's also practical matters like, um, you know, that, that uh, journalists, especially now, are increasingly dependent on the government of for all their sources of news because all the newsrooms have shrunk yeah uh, every newspaper has laid off you know most of their their reporters um mm-hmm. and you know tv stations you know same thing it's you know and and the consolidation of media there's no local media anymore there used to be local newspapers and local tv stations it's those awesome don't exist yeah, yeah nothing you know so there's it's uh and and it's more expensive to do news.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and it used to be news was siphoned, was siloed from from those concerns. The news was like the net, when we had three networks, they were all legally compelled to have news is a part of their license. Mm-hmm. Like when they were originally licensed, when TV was invented, mm-hmm. was you have to provide a, a public service to keep, maintain this license. And so news departments didn't have to make money right they were they were essential, you had to do it, Jim um, yeah, yeah, it had to happen, so you just did it, but mm. you know, but but is this, but now uh you know the uh the resources are so and and because they, you know they've so much of the income has been stripped away by the internet, and um you know, and that we haven't found an effective way of people just not taking expensive reporting and re reposting it for free. Right, you know, which is a
1: problem. Oh yeah, increasingly so.
2: Yeah. So all of these things, and you know, but then, it, but then again, on the other hand, we do have people, like yourself, who are you know, like just citizens uh, taking the time to ask questions and challenge, uh, you know, accepted realities uh, is a is a is an amazing development. Um, but of course, that same tool is available to people that want to cause chaos. And and uh, confuse issues and uh, turn people against each other, you know. So it, you know, so it's a it's a strange time we're living
1: in. Oh, indeed, and and interestingly, I just want to add ask, kind of on that this idea because there are so many forces out there seeking to divide us was kind of ironic to me is that there's maybe an opportunity to literally unite the entire globe on this issue because it's one we can all say you know impacts us this yeah. you know that's the thing too it's like in the movies right like that's what...
2: <laughs> well we're seeing it we're seeing it happen in miniature yeah um uh, because the the people who are getting the information now are in our government Mm
0: -hmm. um
2: and they're getting information from whistleblowers within our military Mm. um and what's happened is that this that the ufo issue is the one issue that has harmonious um, unanimous bipartisan support Mm. amongst all the people who have been exposed to it so you have uh for example, Chuck Schumer and Mike Rounds, uh, natural political enemies, mm-hmm. writing, you know, seventy-page legislation on uh, disclosure of non-human intelligence. And again, no one in the press is covering it.
1: I yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> yep,
2: this was yeah. Chuck Schumer uh, and Mike Rounds were authors, co-authors of legislation. Um that two dozen times uses the term non-human intelligence that in a very detailed and precise way goes through all the places that um ufos may be hidden where non-human intelligence non-human technologies are being hidden and the programs that have been set up to illegally um uh sort of uh, hold these materials and information and keep it secret from from, uh, congressional oversight. (laughs) And that they are also siphoning off uh, money from other programs illegally to fund these programs. (laughs) And so you have, again, two political enemies, people who don't agree on anything, wrote this legislation and within the Senate... uh, uh, Committee, which was the Oversight Committee or the Intelligence Committee. I think it was they wrote this legislation, uh, added it to the uh, the NDAA, which is the funding, uh, the official funding for the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Uh, and yet and it had unanimous uh, support in uh, when, when in the committees that wrote the legislation
1: because they'd seen
2: because they because they've been in.
1: They've seen the intelligence.
2: Yeah, they've seen the intelligence. They've seen the pictures. They've heard the stories from from many whistleblowers. I mean, David Grush is the most famous and public one right now because uh, he he did the uh, the congressional hearings back in the summer. Uh, but we had people like Ryan Graves, who was a fighter pilot off of the east coast of the United States, who came forward and said that you know they were encountering UFOs on a daily basis over a two year period. As they were getting ready, as they were trying to get their training before going into a battle zone, in you know in you know in the Gulf, you know, and um, and they were having to scrub their training missions, you know, and this was like putting their their lives at risk. Wow! And then on the and then on the uh, West Coast, there was the 2004 Tic Tac encounter with David Fravor and Alex Dietrich and where they were sent out, where for a week they were tracking these objects coming from above 80,000 feet into uh, restricted American airspace, military airspace training areas. And they had, they've tracked some of these craft going from 28,000 feet to sea level in 0.78 seconds. I and yeah, so they, so they were tracking these things and then finally they, they sent out uh, uh, two fighter pilots, Alex Dietrich and David Fravor to go have a look hmm. and they got there and they saw this big sort of a cross shaped distur- white water disturbance under the water from, from, you know, at twenty thousand they could see this big like white water on a clear calm day, nothing else disturbing the water except this one area where they had white water. And as they got closer, they saw an object above the white water, sort of flitting about erratically, like this. And they got down to it, and they, they described it as a forty-foot-long uh, tic-tac-shaped <laughs> object. It looked like a forty-foot-long tic-tac. And David Fravor, who is the commander of all the fighter pilots on this on the uh, Nimitz carrier group, he's the one there, and he decides he's going to go down and engage with it. So he flies down and starts you know, he dives down, trying to go down, get close to it. It sees him, reacts to him, and starts mirroring all of his maneuvers in a big circle. Oh. So so it's mirroring. So he decides he's gonna cut across the circle and cut it off. And when he does that, the UFO goes boom, turns at him and then just disappears in a second. Oh my god. And again, on a clear day where they have hundreds of miles of visibility, this thing is gone out of visual range instantaneously and this has all been tracked on multiple radar systems tracked on this on the radar and in in the planes in the jets um tracked on the on the um, uh the theodore Roosevelt is that their radar ship support ship uh tracked an airborne uh radar so it's all multiple
1: sensors reading this stuff we were just discussing off-camera for one second, off-recording for one second, yeah. something that yes. that I said, the reason I started, because if you're watching the video or even listening actually, I, I like had a quick jolt of fear because I was so riveted by what Dave was saying, but also because a stink bug jumped onto my ring light at that exact moment where I was really, really freaked out. But this undercurrent thing that keeps playing in my head is this thing I read as a kid, which was that when when you're talking about I I call them aliens, I don't know what the language is, but that's why I still call them and I I will change it if it's not correct. But um, if you were talking about them, that they knew that you were talking about them and they would then reveal themselves to you in some way or find you, come visit you, show themselves to you. And I lived in perpetual, constant fear that I like saw aliens chasing me or following me, not really chasing. And I said to you, that's ridiculous. And then you said.
2: No, it isn't. Um, No, in fact, it's uh not at all uncommon um for people to engage in the topic uh, you know uh at, at you know ser- seriously you start to think about it and talk about it and some people you know do shows about it that uh actually that engaging with this the subject uh draws it to you um and you know because that's one of the things that Stink
1: are talk-
2: aliens, right? Today Ali- aliens. <laughs> stink Bugs. They could be. I don't know. It um, <laughs> okay, could sorry. be scouts. Uh, <laughs> right. God. But uh, you know, I've talked and and you know, and I can I can say this actually happened to me. So um mm-hmm. yeah, like after about, you know, like ten years of like sort of publicly discussing this subject, uh, I was with my my friend Jeremy Corbell, who I became friends with because I was talking publicly about UFOs. And he made a documentary about Bob Lazar, who was the whistleblower of Area 51 back in '89, um, and uh, and he's also the guy who's released a lot of the, uh, the UFO videos that are you know in the news all the time lately. Um, you know, and he has a lot of contacts within the you know the military, and so but he had never seen anything, and I had never seen anything, but we both and then one. Day, we one night we were out walking his dog out th- on this country road through some orange groves and, um, and we saw a UFO together. So, hmm. and, and, and to make it even weirder, we were standing out there and it was such a beautiful night. And I was looking at all the air traffic off in the distance, the commercial air traffic. And at one point I just said, you know, tonight would be a great night to see something, you know, because neither of us had ever seen anything, but we both took the subject very seriously. And about a minute later, uh, Jeremy goes, Dave, turn around. And uh, I turned around, and then off where I had been watching the commercial air traffic, there was this orangey-gold light pulsing in the distance that was about ten times the size of anything else in the sky. And we stood there uh, silent. We didn't talk at all uh, as this thing circled around this valley we were in got right in front of us hung in front of us for about a minute and then uh, and then went off behind the mountains and it was like only after it had gone away and the only thing the only thing Jeremy at one point Jeremy like I didn't say anything and at one point Jeremy out loud goes I'm not even going to try to take a picture <laughs> yeah which is weird because he's the guy who practices getting ready to take pictures of UFOs all the time <laughs> You know, he he knows all the settings on his phone, he's ready to go if if anything should come along. But to someone, he says this out loud. I'm not sure he was saying it to me. Uh, <laughs> and I don't say anything.
1: Why didn't he want to take a picture?
2: We I well I'll I'll okay, best okay. I can explain it. So okay. it goes so it goes away, it goes behind the mountains, and Jerry suddenly goes, Dude, that was a UFO. <laughs> I turn and I go, Yeah, I think that was. Um, as I said, it was completely silent and it was like this sort of tri- sort of rounded triangular shape with three white lights on the front of it. And it was pulsing this orange light and then the white lights were pulsing and it just hung there in front of us for a long time. It was blocking out all the background. Um, it, there's no way it could be confused with anything else. Um, it was a unique thing.
1: How big was it? Like how? Uh,
2: it? I'd say it's about the size of like a Mack truck.
0: Holy shit!
2: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and and uh, and it showed up because I asked for it, which is a weird thing on its own, and also our reaction to it. Neither one of us had any emotional response, like no excitement, no panic, no no. We weren't overwhelmed. We both just stood there quietly watching, and neither one of us took a picture of it. And the nearest I can explain it is that the thing we were looking at was in control of how we were responding to it. So I'm guessing when Jeremy said, I'm not even going to try to take a picture, that was him fighting the impulse that that part of his brain was saying, I should be taking a picture. But the thing we were watching said, N- no. Wow.
0: Whoa.
2: So, so he's, so out loud, he's, he's, I think he's conversing more with the the thing than with me. Holy shit. And yeah. And so this is, you know, why would this happen? Why would it happen when we're together? It, it, you know, and, and it's, that's the thing is that more and more you realize that, that sightings aren't random. Um,
1: yeah, you know. but uh, w- the story I told you before, my my friend Karen and I, like we were both, like w- we went out looking. We never done that before. We never did it again after that. Yeah, and we would like just keep looking. We'll <laughs> see something. Let's hopefully we'll see something. And now that you, s- now i have like super chills all over my body because I'm like, oh yeah. my god, what if like the- what if it it will we willed it t- to be there.
2: Well that's the thing it seems to me that a major component of the UFO experience is uh something occurring on the level of consciousness the interaction with these things isn't just visual it isn't just uh um seeing a a, a machine that that whatever is behind these things the uh you know the non-human intelligence that's that's uh, behind the phenomena um is interacting with us on a on the level of consciousness you know which is uh which sounds weird but we're we're you know we're but we're even in our you know primitive state of science we're starting to realize that consciousness is more um weird than we thought it was you know even like i just watched a, an amazing 45 minute documentary on youtube a little uh, Called Rethinking Death, uh, put out by, um, forgetting the name of the doctor, but it was his lab at the New York University Hospital, and uh, basically looking at the history of like near-death experiences and looking at all the the uh, documentation of it, and basically saying, and this is like the first time I've heard mainstream scientists and medical professionals coming out and saying that you know near-death experiences are real. Mm-hmm. you know because for i mean you know for decades now people have been trying to explain it as uh, as an illusion uh that it's a, just the brain shutting down and creating these 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 uh, hallucinations but but the truth is that the people who are having these experiences <clears throat> are having these experiences at a time when their brains have stopped functioning mm-hmm. um and in fact you know where they are the end of their EEGs they're flatlined they're they're dead and they're having visual experiences and audit, audit they're they're leaving their bodies and they're traveling places both in the, that you know like they're seeing the medical teams working on their bodies
0: mm-hmm.
2: they're seeing doctors talking to their loved ones you know and they're able to recount all these things when they're revived you know and in this document, they talk about how Basically we started you know modern medicine started encountering them as soon as they invented CPR. You know, once you started once they started being able to restart hearts. Right. They started getting near death experiences recounted by people that they revived. And then, you know, since then we've gone to the point where we they can now revive people that have been dead for an hour.
1: Oh, I didn't know that.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And it's difficult, and they're trying to work on techniques to make it more um, uh, to make it work better. Mm-hmm. You know, because they they found things like like people have been dead for an hour, they've been able to revive them, but once they reintroduce blood flow to the brain and oxygen to the brain, it can be toxic to the brain and actually kill the brain. Hmm. Uh, so they're thinking, so they've developed new techniques for revive for restarting the brain, um, and and as they've been doing that, they've been getting more and more people coming back after being dead for an hour and they've actually even changed the term they've said it's they don't no longer call it near-death experience they call it uh, a recalled experience of death mm-hmm. and and you know this again nyu very serious not wacky far out people saying that these people yeah that they aren't these aren't near-death experiences these are people who are has been dead they've crossed right through the gray zone they are dead and they are revived
1: i mean when you think about what we don't know about the brain and this it's like it's like well we don't know about the bottom of the ocean you know what i mean yeah. it's we did there's it's so much and the idea that i mean we have creatures on this earth that have like dolphins for instance they say they have an entire sense right that that like an, an emotional sense that the human beings don't even possess yeah um and 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 the idea that something with so much technology that the tic-tac can disappear in, you know, a second or half a minute, yeah. millisecond, if they have that kind of technology the, and we are ever, you know, increasing our own capacity for technology with the brain, it's not impossible or implausible even to think that these, you know, n- not aliens, you said, I forget what the word is, but.
2: Well, you, no, you, you can say aliens. I don't think they're as touchy about this sort okay, of thing. Okay,
1: good. I <laughs> just want to make sure I don't offend yeah. I don't want to misname anybody. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but like, the, the, the it's not plausible that they would be able to have technology where they could manipulate yours and your friend's emotional responses of, yeah. you know, in that, the, literally mess with your brain in that in that moment. It's not impossible or implausible to think that at all, given no. that you don't know. Well,
2: they, they can manipulate consciousness the same way we can manipulate radio waves. Right. You yeah. know? Yeah, um, and, and, you know, and it's, uh, and I mean, we've even, there's even, there's been a study that's been going on for a long time at Princeton, or it was at Princeton, I think maybe it's moved out of Princeton now, but it was called the Princeton Global Consciousness Study. Um, and it started out with, uh, uh, I guess it was a graduate student, Princeton came up with the idea of, of, of having students concentrate on a machine that is essentially a coin flip machine. You know, it's a, it's a machine that comes up either A or B, right? Mm-hmm. And they had these students come in and try to concentrate on getting one result. And they found that when they did that, uh, the machine stopped being random. Yeah. And you started getting more, you know, more heads than tails than you should have by chance. And they thought, and they kept doing it. They kept bringing other students in. It, was it this person that had an unusual power and they bring them? No, nope. Everyone that tried it, they got it pretty much. They got a good result. And they said the results were it was uh, really uh, like you know billions to one against it being uh, chance. And, then, and and then they, they oh, I was going to say, and then they decided to expand it. They said, well what happens when large groups of people are focusing on an event?" And uh, so they start, they set up random number generators all over the planet at different institutes around the planet and then they waited for some event and as luck would have it for them uh this was right before 9 11 happened and so when 9 11 happened all of these random number generators around the world that, that they were monitoring all went off randomness and started producing patterns um and they found this number of times when, when uh, the funeral of uh of pierre trudeau in canada like almost every canadian was listening to the uh you know um the the funeral service when uh when at that time Justin Trudeau was speaking uh doing his eulogy for his dad like almost every canadian was listening and they found that the number, random number generators in canada went off randomness um so and they found this over and over again they've been having this result since 2001 over and over and over again and um you know there's no explanation for it other than that that consciousness has an impact on the physical world.
1: Wow! Wow!
2: So I mean, if we're yeah, we're we're baby steps of understanding how consciousness interacts with the world.
1: Yeah, we're re- yeah, we're really at its infancy. We have no, we really. I mean, again, there's no reason to think that it, you know that these aliens, who probably and likely well, must predate us, right, in terms of existence. Yeah. 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 This, what this does for me, Dave, is it confirms, going back to hockey, that I am responsible for the Rangers Stanley Cup win because uh, I watched every game and I used to sit there and I would channel every ounce of my brain energy into them winning. And everyone thought I was nuts because I really, truly believed that I was having an impact. And then they won the Stanley Cup and I well, haven't then, won it then, since.
2: Then here's an idea. Why don't you watch the goddamn Maple Leafs?
1: (laughs) Who the hell watches the goddamn Maple Leafs?
2: Me. Since since, uh, the earliest memories I have.
1: See, I'm so old that I remember the Quebec Nordiques. That's how old I am. And I liked them better than the Maple Leafs.
2: Well, I am so old I remember when the Leafs won the Stanley Cup.
1: When was that? It- 67. Oh, God, 1867? I, I don't remember. <laughs>
2: 1967, last time we won the cup.
1: You're not using
2: the tenure. You
1: need yeah. to really
2: now believe so- me. There are millions of Leaf fans who every year go, This is our year. Yeah. Maybe we just don't believe. Maybe we just don't believe. our Don't enough. believe
1: enough. You need to get, you need to believe. No. Now, I'm really sure of it now. But although I haven't, I haven't focused that much, ener- that much energy on the Rangers winning again. So now I need to refocus my energy. And it doesn't work for the Yankees for some strange.
2: Yeah. Time. And you're not a Devils fan.
1: Hell no. God but you're in New no. Jersey. That's an expansion team. they in Colorado. That's not a, that's not a, no, the, new, the the Rangers are one of the original teams. I mean, this
2: is. I oh, I'm, Original six, I'm all in favor of. I love yeah.
1: Yeah, and and it's just the whole culture but No offense to anybody who's a Devils fan, you're better than Flyers fans, but still, um, yeah, it's not. You gotta be a Rangers fan. I mean, at least when you're yeah. my age, yeah. You know.
2: I was a Flyers fan because my uncle played for the Flyers when I was a oh kid. My. Yeah, Rick Foley played for the Flyers for four four seasons, I think.
1: Wow what what years?
2: Uh, right up to, from like '72 up until just before they won their first Stanley Cup.
1: Who was he playing with back?
2: Like it would have been that would have been like uh, you know uh, Bobby Clark and Rick oh McLeish my and yeah
1: God. he would have been playing against or Bobby Orr not
2: yeah it would have been yeah Bob Bobby Orr Phil Esposito uh my, he actually was brought up by Chicago in the uh, the Stanley Cup final between Chicago and Montreal in seventy one I think it was because I, I he yeah, was living in Nova Scotia when we watched it he was brought up just he was brought up from the minors to play in the Stanley Cup final
1: was that in Chicago was it in, Ch-
2: in Chicago he played for Chicago and then the next year he was traded to Philadelphia and um, played there
1: what an yeah. unfortunate trade for yeah, Chicago Rick, great
2: Foley. yeah but he but the flyers became this great team you know? yeah
1: yeah well that's debatable in, but- <laughs>
2: yeah you yeah.
1: just yeah, just, on, just on the yeah just um yeah out of point of principle I can't say that but but yeah. I can yeah I can't say it about the islanders either but so that's fine but but I always
2: Although they had, they had a pretty great run
1: they yeah Mm. And then I remember the Fancy. senators showed up somewhere and I was like, the senators? And then you know, that was that. Str- have, you, well, yeah, way, yeah. have you ever been to um, Lake Placid, New York, to the hockey, to the 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 rink there from the Olympics? It's, no. Oh, I think it's called Herb Brooks Arena now. And it's yeah. obviously the miracle on ice. But if obviously you like hockey, I mean, yes, that's American history, in hockey. But um, yeah,
2: yeah, we <laughs> yeah, we didn't see it as a miracle. We saw it as a great disappointment.
1: Were you guys, did we beat you or did Russia beat you?
2: You beat you beat the Russians. Yeah, it, yeah. We beat
1: the Russians in that game, but Russia I
2: just knocked it, us out to it.
1: That's right. Yeah. I'm trying to think how we got yeah. to because that wasn't the final. That right? That was this. Yeah. Right. So where where did you guys get knocked off in of that? I don't even remember, but
2: we were, in, uh, I guess, in the semifinal.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, it's still worth just as a hockey fan, still going. Yeah. It was there. a
2: great story. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> it was a great story. Yeah. I mean, and uh, yeah, but it's funny because I, I was such a huge hockey fan. This the total, obviously, segue from the alien thing. Sorry, <laughs> I was such a big hockey fan that I would sing the Canadian national anthem, and still to this day know every word because it's a yeah. This is going to be something I'm going to get canceled for. It's a it's a really good anthem. It's like I, it, yeah, it's a really easy to sing anthem. It's a really good anthem. Like I could I yeah. have to say, it's better than our anthem, but it's it's a good yeah. anthem. And
2: they even took the sexism out of it. (laughs) They did. Yeah, it's no longer in all our sons' command. It's in all of us' command.
0: Oh, go Canada.
1: Look at that. I have no idea.
2: Yeah. And there's still God is still in there, too. Of
1: course. Yeah. We still (laughs) do. I remember Celine Dion singing the Canadian national anthem at one of the All Star games before she was famous. And I was like, wow, that lady can sing. And yeah. somebody can fact check me on this, but I feel like that was like Mike Gartner was playing yeah. that game. So it had to be like before they yeah. won the cup. But that's going back a ways. I think it was. I think it was
2: David Letterman used to go on and on about how much he loved the Canadian national anthem. Really? Yeah. He used to talk about, he to, oh, it's a beautiful anthem. Beautiful, beautiful song.
1: He's right. His yeah. Name, it should be talked about more. I feel like we could yeah. borrow, you know, a few pointers from you guys. On your anthem, it's just it's you can't. Yeah. We can't have an anthem. We can't sing. It doesn't work. Yeah.
2: No, and it's and it's and it's so the American anthem is so violent. It's so <laughs> uh, it's about a war and rockets and that's Not
1: American at all. Yeah, it's like yeah. <laughs> it should be about peaceful protest. Yeah, it's It's all about
2: out. being the true north, strong and free, right. with mm-hmm. glowing glowing hearts. You know,
1: our card—it really is like chicken soup for the soul in an anthem. Yeah, it is a very
2: nice. It's a very anodyne and non non militaristic anthem. Yeah,
1: it's it's so Canadian in that way. It's the cast. That's yeah. Again, that's the way that that I see the Canadians is is to where you were anodyne. (laughs) Yeah, peaceful. Of course, now I can't find that Celine Dion song, but she sang several national anthems. She sang it in French.
2: Yeah, my my friend, my friend Dave Hill, uh, who's a, a brilliant comedian and musician, uh, he performed the national anthem in. Uh, uh, was, it was in Anaheim. Yeah, he did it with the Toronto Maple Leafs in Anaheim. Oh, really. Uh, yeah, and I actually had tickets for that game, but I didn't go because I had COVID. Okay. Um, but he played the national anthems on his guitar, Whoa. like Jimi Hendrix style. Oh, that's cool. uh, which he got attacked for, like people because really? he because he also did them, because he did him like he does this very funny shredding, you know, uh, where it's like really over the top heavy metal shredding.
1: Yeah, yeah. Lucky fans it's- like their anthems pretty yeah. pure.
2: Yeah, and if you get the joke, then you know <laughs> what I think. But yeah, but it was I I loved it. I thought it was hilarious That's and funny. great. Yeah.
1: Um. By the way, I don't know if you know this. Be, listen to you. You must know this. You live in New York part of the year, right? You said yeah, oh, yeah. Do you yeah, know that the, have the Rangers year. have a the Rangers have an influencer program? Like it's like a not an influencer program, but it's like a you know they have a VIP program for famous people.
2: Oh no. Ugh.
1: Okay. No, no, I, I the way, that change your life. Okay, and okay. you're going to thank me for this by taking me to a Rangers game someday because I'm about to change your life. I swear. All you. right. Okay.
2: Well, they, well they're going to make the playoffs, right? So I'll be back.
1: I, w- I mean, we'll see with them. It's a perpetual life cycle of heartbreak. But we needed Marc Messier to win is what we needed. That's what we needed. We needed basically the Oilers so we could win the cup. And that was fine because I still love Mark Messier. Yeah. We well, got to meet, by the way. That was very cool. Then yeah. I also got to meet yeah. Gretzky, although I scared the shit out of him. I'm going to get record after I tell you this because nobody knows this. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I actually scared Gretzky a little bit because it was at the U.S. Open and all these people started bothering him. But Messier was a gentleman. And um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Gretzky also turned out to be kind of an asshole, which is a bummer, right? Like that's kind of. Gretzky, I don't know. That's I, what I've heard. No, yeah. I don't know. That's uh, what I've heard. But he's like friends with Trump and stuff. But anyway. Uh, anyway. Oh, no. Yeah. So my friend Steve Hofstetter is a comedian. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's-, he's I know very, the name, yeah. Well known. He's, he's got a big YouTube following. He tours and stuff. He's a great guy. He's a, a New Yorker also. Lifelong Rangers fan. Also a Mets fan, which is a shame. But so he knows I'm a Rangers fan and he's like, hey, I'm coming up from Pittsburgh or whatever. I'm going to the thing we usually- I usually do. I'm like, what's that? He's like, oh, the Rangers have this program. If you're, you know, notable in any way or famous, like then you get access through some other gate where they bring you down to the president's suite under the ice. And then Uh, it's like it's like a big party and there's all the food and drinks and all the things. And then you walk up to the ice and you have seats right behind the bench. So you're right there on the ice and it's all free. And the wow. other thing they'll give you, there's a like a whole separate part of the garden where they have like a, a sit down meal and they pour like $100 bottles of wine and it's a whole experience and you can go anytime you want and it's free. You just give them a heads up that you're coming via email and there's a guy who I'm going to put you in touch with. And then whenever you're there, they put you if, you, if you're there, they'll put you on the camera and then the crowd goes crazy and then that's it. And it's, it's the, I, I will stop because it no,
2: says, no, oh, I won no, that's you. You have no idea how much you're exciting me right now.
1: <laughs> so, so, so I'm because I'm a, a dork, and I'm I don't have a, a poker face, and I'm in this experience like this is a dream of mine because I grew up d- dreaming of being that close to the bench. I used to go to their open practices in Rye when I was a kid and wait. Oh wow! Three in the morning for them to start skating at nine. I would sit there on the cold ice floor waiting for the players to come and practice. That's how. Diehard I was, but yeah. so I'm. I'm geeking out this entire time. Like this is so cool, so much so that all these people who work at the garden start bringing me gifts. They're like, "You like this? Here, take this helmet. Do you like this? Here, take this hat. Do you like this? Take this shirt." And they're just like giving me all I went home. I have it with a mock up of a helmet. Wow. And well, this, yeah. So I'm gonna. And my friend Steve has the guy's name because he tried to put me in touch with him. I wasn't famous enough shocker and so I did not get into the program but you're Dave Foley I
2: mean well I, I can look uh, at I know I know my buddy Mike was in that I guess yeah I just thought that was just for Mike Mike Myers yeah that oh, was just of course
1: <laughs> Mike Myers is in it yeah my buddy Mike uh, my buddy Mike is Mike Myers yes of course yeah. your buddy Mike Mike Myers yes it's a whole program when we were there it was like some chef Ann Burrell was in there and and I've seen other uh, Tom Hanks is in the program and and, and you
2: well, I gotta get. Him. Well, then, all right, we're going to a hockey game.
1: Okay, if you, you well, what you should do first is bring your buddy Mike, and then the whole place will go freaking insane. Uh, Dave Foley and Mike Myers together, forget it. Oh my god! It's he like, moved,
2: well, he he moved to Hawaii, so he's uh, yeah. He did. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. did not know that. That's no. that's so not Canadian. Um. Yeah. Okay. I'm. What I'm gonna do is after we're done, I'm gonna text Steve, ask him to think. Then I'm gonna send sure. Him. I all mean, right. It's a no brainer. Yeah, it was. So cool, like it was the coolest experience. I mean, you you can see, all, and the shift changes, and the sticks are all right there, and so they're, they're, they're snodding in front of you. It was amazing, like that. Oh, cool, cool. No, I mean, yeah, you can't beat that. Okay, so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do go back and then I'm gonna okay. start with our last segment, which is really fast. It's three totally random questions. And,
0: and Oh, okay, yeah.
1: So then I, I really appreciate your generosity. <laughs> my time, oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Oh, my god, I feel so bad, like I'm giving me like. All this time. Okay. But the alien thing is absolutely riveting. And now I'm really. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, yeah, I'm happy. Happy to talk more with you about that anytime you want. <laughs> it's
1: I just think that this is stuff, again, that people are not talking about as much, but although it is more than they uh, were.
2: <clears throat> yeah. But still, the fact that it's the most important story on Earth and no one's really talking about it.
1: It's really it's well, in like the,
2: that the Chuck Schumer, that legislation got no press coverage.
1: I inject legislation into my veins every day. It's what I do. I wake up and start looking to see what's going on. And I had no idea. I had no idea.
2: And Kristen Gillibrand and Marco Rubio also wrote legislation together. That was UFO. They wrote uh, legislation to uh, cut off funding uh, to any uh, uh, government uh, programs that don't report what they know about UFOs.
1: See that's I did the reason the only reason I heard about that was because in this national security threat that was flagged last week about the Russian weapon in space, and then that that legislation came up. But you know what they did not mention in that whole conversation: UFOs.
2: Because, UFOs. Right? No. Oh, they, yeah.
1: Yeah, they didn't talk about well,
0: that at
2: all. No. Well, and also um, the guy who uh, who who uh, made that public, Mike Turner. Yeah. Uh, is the guy who uh, gutted Chuck Schumer's legislation. Because Chuck, Schumer's, Chuck Schumer and Mike Rounds' leg, uh, legislation built into a nine-person panel, civilian panel, that basically it said all, all information about UFOs would become declassified, uh, would all be assumed to be dis- declassified. And if military wants to, uh, you know... Uh, or cia want to make a case that anything should stay classified it has to go through this nine person civilian panel and they would report directly to the president oh my god it also had eminent domain provisions so that they the government could take back uh recovered ufos from people like lockheed martin whoa so so mike rounds uh gutted that those provisions in the legislation. Turner
1: did. Mike Turner. I'm
2: sorry, Mike Turner. Yeah, gutted it. And just coincidentally, um, Mike Turner is the representative for uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Mm. uh, which is uh, very famous in UFO lore as being the place that the Roswell debris was brought. Whoa. And uh, also was the home of Project Blue Book. What is that? That was the uh, the official government investigation investigation into UFOs uh, back in the from the fifties up to 1969, and it was the lead scientist was a guy named Jay Allen Hynek, um, whose son Paul was a friend of mine. Um, But basically, that was the program um, to study UFOs, but it was mostly wound up being uh, a cover up. Hmm. Um, You know, and Jay Allen Hynek who was brought in basically his job was to debunk ufos but through working on it he came to believe ufos were real and then when he left the program spent the rest of his life uh fighting for disclosure on ufos
1: and that's mike turner's district so that's very interesting i wonder if yeah how many layers deep that whole thing goes back in his it was yeah, his he gets a
2: lot of money, a uh-huh. lot of money from
1: Exactly. That. His donors are like, no.
2: Because that's the biggest source of money in Dayton, Ohio.
1: That's in Dayton? Yeah. Okay, yeah. now it's all coming together. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. My nephew was briefly stationed out of that base for like one minute before he went to Virginia. I yeah. totally forgot about that.
2: Yeah. There's not a lot of other big industry in the area. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. My sister I can say this before I start recording. My sister flew the b one b after nine eleven. She was the, uh, yeah, she was the uh, the navigator, bombardier or whatever. Now I want to ask her so the <laughs> Kim, she doesn't tell me anything because you know what she does now? no because she'll kill me. she now her job is for geospatial. She reads satellite imagery in a dark uh-huh. room all day she knows shit my sister knows things she'll that's never where, tell me yeah
2: well that's where David Gresh worked he was in the geospatial office he was also with um, the National Reconnaissance Office
1: my sister will never tell me if she tells yeah. me she will kill me because she yeah. said to me in the past I've asked her about Gaza she's like I knew if I knew that I wouldn't tell you and I can't tell you so don't ask so I was like yeah. okay so yeah, she yeah.
2: Geos- things yeah the geospatial office yeah they they yeah they know things. They've seen things.
1: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm fine. Okay, wait. Are men in black real? That's not real.
2: Um, not only are they real, it's uh, weirder than. Oh God! What you think? I, uh, James Lakatsky, who ran the top the secret OSAP program that was funded by Harry Reid. Um, that's the one. You know, it's the real program that. The New York Times article in 2017 basically outed the ATIP program, which was a Pentagon program that was unfunded. Okay. Uh, But ATIP grew out of a program called OSAP that was funded by Harry Reid. And, you know, there's a dark money project. Hmm. And OSAP was run by a guy named James Lukatsky. There's actually two, two, my friend George Knapp has written two books with Lekatsky and uh, Colm Kelleher was also a scientist on the program, um, but uh, Lakatsky they were on uh, my friend uh, uh, Jeremy Corbell's podcast with George Knapp, and he dropped um, quite nonchalantly said, "Well, you know," said, "Well, there were people out there who like uh, like to present themselves as being the men in black, you know. He, uh, they try to, you know, you know, use that guise and." pass themselves off as the men in black. Uh, but the real men in black aren't human.
1: Oh, Jesus. <laughs> God.
2: And he said, yeah, so there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of uh, encounters with these men in black showing up and, uh, uh, but the real ones aren't human. Okay. And this okay. is a, and, and James Katsky, an intelligence officer and physicist.
0: Yeah, that's.
1: Hey, okay. um, yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> we've gone down some serious, interesting rabbit holes that I have now. Lots and lots and lots more questions regarding. Yeah. And
2: we'll do- well, yeah. UFOs yeah. and hockey. Hockey is even more mysterious to Americans. So
1: <laughs> True. Although not this one. Not no. this one but and it's becoming increasingly popular here but is i would arguably say it is the best sport and one of the things when i was a kid i was like i want to be canadian cuz i want a backyard hockey rink and i was like i can't even skate but i knew that <laughs> yeah. i knew. yeah but well, but i would have moved to calgary i don't know why probably the olympics there i was like i like calgary
2: very cold i was just there for 6 months last winter so
1: oh, yeah no, then I will pass on Calgary. Like yeah. 30
2: below, kind of cold.
1: Oh, no, no, no. Like New Jersey is too cold for me. So I'm good on that. Is there a hot boat in Canada?
2: Thank- Vancouver is as warm as it gets. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, all right. So we'll skip that. <laughs> all right. And since we've covered hockey aliens, kids in the hall, um, now I'm going to segue to the totally random rapid fire question round that I all, right. all of my podcasts with. These are the most serious, hard-hitting questions of the entire interview. Okay. All right. Um, number one, we've discussed at length that you believe in aliens, as do I. Do you believe in ghosts?
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think the same thing with, uh, there's just far too much anecdotal evidence um, and, far, and, this, and ghosts are far too big a part of every culture. Um, going back to the beginnings of recorded history, Mm. uh, for there to be nothing to it. You know, it's just, it's, it just, you know, it just doesn't make sense that there's nothing to it, but it's persisted throughout human history, you know, that people keep seeing them. Yeah. Uh, and also there's, uh, also ghost phenomena and, um, like poltergeist phenomena and, and it's all kind of interrelated with UAP phenomena. Um, and in fact, I get James Lekatsky, who ran OSAP and, you know, did studies at Skinwalker Ranch basically said, if you, if you, you can't study the UFO problem without studying the paranormal problem because it's all part of the same thing. So it's, um, Ooh. and again, it comes back to the notion that it's all related to consciousness and, um, uh, you know, and consciousness is, cause I sat, watched that documentary about people surviving death uh that uh it's it, it's all related to consciousness life death ghosts ufos um they're all interrelated that that's is, my answer.
1: yeah that's a very good answer i never considered that actually at all because now that i realize that makes a lot of sense it yeah I would also think that if you could talk to the ghosts, they would have probably some things to say about the aliens they've seen.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Right? Like yeah. let me yeah. tell you a few stories. <laughs>
2: well there are there are there are there are abduction stories of people encountering dead relatives. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's not an not an uncommon um aspect of the abduct, abductee phenomena.
1: In the like, so I'm picturing like the cocoons that I pictured in the, and, like they do in the horrible movies where they're in, it's like cocoons and okay, this, but I, I, yeah, <laughs> no,
2: no, but no. it's this? This, this more pleasant. They just, they're just there and dead relatives show up and say hello and say, don't worry, you're going to be fine.
1: Wow. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. By the way, total segue really fast. I'm just remembering there was a movie when I was a kid in the 80s and I feel like it was in like Minnesota or somewhere with big trees where they'll be firefighters or something they oh,
2: the, yes that um, Travis Walton story
1: yeah yeah
2: up in uh, Pacific Pacific Northwest
1: okay yeah, and it was big trees yeah and there's a bunch yeah. of guys right it wasn't just one yeah, guy they,
2: were, they worked for the forestry department yes and there was like six of them yeah he had like Travis and, and five co-workers and uh, yeah, he they saw a, a UFO in the woods He and he went out to investigate it, was hit by a light, a blue light, knocked like 10 feet in the air. His friends all panicked and took off. And uh, and then about 15 minutes later, they, when they calmed down. They said, well, we got to go back for Travis. They went back and he was gone. The UFO was gone. They were, you know, they reported it to the police and uh and over five days they were all accused of murdering him and there was searches for his body in the woods and all these guys were doing polygraph tests and and they all which they all passed and uh but they were you know again they were being accused accused of murdering their friend Uh and still they stuck to their story that he was a that you know they had encountered a ufo you know so if the you know so if it was a prank you would think once you're looking at a murder charge, you'd right. go, you'd go, all right, I'm kidding. You know, right. but yeah, but yeah, Travis Walton, he like he was missing for five days and then uh, was released and like called his brother, his brother-in-law on a on pay phone to come get him. And he had no idea that he'd gone for five days. So you- that's a Travis, yeah, that's a Travis Walton story. Okay, yeah, the movie was called, movie was called Fire in the Sky, I think.
1: Yes, 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 yes. So, I, so again, I'm going back. That's got to be like 87, 88. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere in that neighborhood because I was with my girlfriends and it was, well, all we could do at the time was we were only kids and, like, you know, we'd our parents drop us off to the movies, pick us up. I remember that freaking yeah. Me out. Yes, yeah. Okay. Probably. I'm going to go with
0: 88. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually going to go, go uh, contact in the desert this summer and I guess Travis Walton's going to be there. I've never met him. So, I'm looking forward to that. But...
1: Oh, that's... Wow. So, he's still involved in the whole... Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very, Very well. Wow. The community. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Um, that's a weird thing to suddenly remember because so I totally forgot about that movie. But, um. Oh. Okay. So movies. There's,
2: oh, if you want, Payne Lindsay did a great interview with Travis mm-hmm. on his. He did you know? But you know Payne Lindsay does the. Uh, does like a true crime podcast series.
1: My girlfriend's opera. love true crime, but so they would know who that is. But
2: so, I. Don't. Yeah, he's like a superstar of of podcasting. Okay. And uh, and. But he did a podcast called High Strange, that was all about UFOs last year.
1: Oh, see, now my girlfriend should listen to that. They they only yeah. have to do like the murder ones and like.
2: But he did a great interview, and we had, we had him on our show. Pain, uh, very very nice guy, beautiful too, really, really? handsome fella.
1: <laughs> yeah, prepare right. yourself.
2: Yeah, wear <laughs> like, wear comfortable clothing when you watch his podcast.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh my god! Okay, <laughs> probably blushing. Okay. Yes, because typically the ball gowns that I wear would be,
2: just <laughs> yeah. As I it not get it interfere as with I, you. You're as enjoying
1: on my own, in my own, yeah, in my meth dentist. Um, the same. We were talking about movies. This Go on. is yes. number one, but like no, <laughs> you're the best alien movie. By the way, there's another memory I had because we read War of the Worlds when I, well, we listened to War of the Worlds when I was a kid because that happened in New Jersey, right? So that yeah, yeah, Orson Wells um that reminds also of citizen king was orson welles in it (laughs) i forget um yeah okay so what's the best alien movie and the worst alien movie or like you know sort of yeah uh
2: i don't i i think uh i think probably i think one of my favorites is uh well obviously the best i mean i guess if you're gonna say the best maybe it's it's uh close encounters
0: Oh yeah, that's so good.
2: But uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still is up there for me too. I've never seen that. One. The original Robert Wise from the fifties. Uh, although I have to say that I think Day of the the original Day of the Earth Stood Still in the fifties um, is much more of a Christ parable than a uh, than a uh, a real a, you know alien movie. It's hmm. more like a. Basically, a re, yeah, it's basically a, a UFO version of the the Jesus story. Oh. You know, and as like many atheists, I love the Jesus story a <laughs> good story it's, it's such a good story <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, the you know the alien in that uh played by uh, uh michael Rennie uh you know and his 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 space name is Klatu um but his uh his human name that he takes when he's uh hiding from the authorities is uh John Carpenter. Which mm. is, of course, JC Jesus Christ. Oh, and, and also, right. and also, Christ was a carpenter. Yeah, mm. and there's a whole thing where he's uh when he originally presents himself to the authorities on Earth, they kill him.
1: Oh, and then mm.
2: then his robot Gort revives him, so he's killed, resurrected.
1: Mm. Yeah, mm. the Jesusy thing, maybe not. It's so. a
2: very Jesusy story. Yeah, yeah. it's a great movie.
1: Well which which one does them does the whole story the most like disservice of the like
2: most favorite. disservice. Um I, I probably have to go with Independence Day.
0: Oh no, <laughs> so, is that's, 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 that's so
2: bad. It's a terrible movie. Terrible. Uh, yeah. terrible. And, yeah. Some of the yeah, and this yeah, the script is awful. Um <laughs> some of the worst some of the worst dialogue ever forced out of an actor's voice mouth. Uh, yeah so i would say Independence Day worst worst UFO movie.
1: What are your thoughts on The Tom Cruise War of the Worlds? Uh
2: you know what I did I remember being really uh, opposed to it when I when I uh when it was first coming out and then uh, watching it. and it's really good. It's really, well it's done. Actually really good. Yeah. It's yeah. really well done. Yeah. It's like
1: the scene when they get in the car and and they finally get it to start and everything behind them is just
2: Yeah. Yeah. And um and that you know the, the the yeah the 747 crashing in the neighborhood and which is cool you can still go out and see that at, at Universal Studios on the tour. Oh really? Uh, yeah yeah, that neighborhood is still there. Oh that's um, cool. I
0: mean, yeah.
2: Uh yeah, it's really well done, and Tom Cruise is always good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the it, thing. Yeah, he's like just like always good.
1: The cake. I mean, it's, you're not really ever going to maybe there's a bad cake out there. I mean, cakes can usually be pretty. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> Can deliver,
2: yeah, and yeah. conquers con- con- all the stories, yeah.
1: Know? And who's I mean, I that's not Spielberg, is it Spielberg? It is Spielberg, so, yeah, right. And again, there's the magic of Spielberg because nobody does, nobody does yes. anything, especially when it comes to lighting. And and I'm I mean, just... e- even ET, right? So, obviously,
2: it's, yeah, awesome. and it's like, yeah, and it's you know, and it's you know, and obviously, War of the Worlds is much darker than most of Spielberg's, you know, a ET is pretty dark points. Mean,
0: Oh God, when he's in the
1: ravine and yeah, oh yeah, and 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 Elliot's dying and he's oh yeah, yeah. But but the scene and, in, another
2: another Jesus little Jesus element in there too. Oh yeah,
1: because yeah. I realized yeah. that. But yep. the yeah. scene, the scene with Tim Robbins in War of the Worlds that that whole like that whole sort of section of the film where like the divines and the blood and they're getting sucked up to the that's pretty dark for yeah yeah.
2: Yeah, it's it's a dark movie. Yeah,
1: <laughs> which should yeah. it shouldn't be because it's such a lighthearted subject. <laughs> but
2: yeah, it but it has this, but it does have a happy ending. It <laughs> is Spielberg.
1: It's Spielberg. What, yeah. Right. So The original War of the Worlds must have been. I was obsessed too with what a head trip that must have been for people to be like really thinking. Maybe. Oh, the radio play. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, yeah. It's. Been, I mean, it's been very much exaggerated over. The course oh. of history. I mean, that right. there were there was the whole nation wasn't freaking out. Right. <laughs> there was a small group of people, and that made for good news, you know. Yeah. That, uh, but yeah, there was a small group of people that took it seriously and panicked.
0: Right uh, in in
1: Jersey, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, Grover Grover's Mills. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we were pretty calm. I'm
2: Yeah, as I say, most people most people realized they were listening to a radio play. Ugh. No. Never.
1: You can't fool people now, I mean even with the truth <laughs> yeah not like, really like, no
2: because in fact, the whole second half of War of the Worlds drops the whole radio what drops the whole broadcast conceit mm. and you're just you're with the uh, professor from Princeton as he's wandering around trying to survive and it just mm. becomes a straight radio play,
0: yeah
1: uh, well. Very interesting. But again, we can't make people believe things that are real now when we could when they will believe things that weren't back then. Okay, last question is also alien related, I apologize. All right, no problem. <laughs> in your lane. If you were a scientist and you got a scientist or an astronaut or whatever, but a scientist, I guess, that could get to another planet and you got to meet, you know, the native inhabitants of that planet and, and not die, um, what would you ask them? What would like maybe the first question be?
2: If they're interested in improv workshops. <laughs>
0: That's a good That's a good
2: question. By the, by the way, my answer to that, if anyone asks me that question, is no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we always watch right. um Okay, second question would be... Second
2: question <laughs> of the aliens.
1: Yeah. After you know, they say no, thank you.
2: <laughs> if they don't want to pay $60 for an improv workshop. Uh
1: Right. They don't have a big demand for,
2: yeah, uh, for workshops. I, I yeah, well, I guess it depends. Um, um, are, are they a, are they a species more advanced than us, less advanced? Uh,
1: yeah, so yeah, I would say that they're more advanced than us, and they they can they we don't have to talk to them, I guess, because they can read your mind.
2: Yeah. Um. I guess I, maybe the first question would be: What happens when you die?
0: Whoa. Oh, that is fascinating.
1: Yes, because
2: I think they, I think they know.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Okay, that is fascinating. All right. So now that well, we have a lot to think about because mm. we know that they probably don't want improv comedy.
2: Yeah. No. No. Right. And that's my advice, to everyone. Everyone, just steer clear. Most, most, most of the time, improv's a bad idea.
1: No, never, never a bad idea. As as a person who. Only one thousand percent appreciates all of your contributions to comedy in this world, and and is raising her son to not just know you from the from a, the, as a bug. someday he will appreciate as well because he wants he's very much wants to be like he enjoys comedy and he's a very funny kid. So like yeah, you sketch comedy, improv comedy, whatever you're whatever you brought into the world, whatever you're putting out there still is it's it's a, it's an incredible service because. I mean honestly it's humor is medicine as you could probably attest.
2: Yeah but I, it I certainly uh, uh comedy certainly helped me get through my childhood and adolescence you know and
1: now more than ever with the craziness in the world and like just how heavy things can be and how uncertain things can feel and this layer of comedy is sanity saving
0: for sure. Yeah oh yeah
2: you know it it's you know um being able to keep a sense of humor as uh, as modern democracy fails uh, is good.
1: <laughs> we'll be we laughing as we go over the side of that cliff. Yeah. Like, oh boy, we'll we be laughing. Yeah, as we were like, "Aren't you the guy from that TV show?"
2: <laughs> yeah. But again, this year might be the year that human uh, dominance ends. Anyway, so
1: yeah. So I guess yeah, like it maybe I always think there's no superhero coming to save us, but maybe an alien can come and.
2: I you know, I keep getting uh from people uh people keep intimating that some there's some very, very big things are going to come out uh, uh soon. About oh. about about the uh the non-human intelligence that we're sharing the planet with.
1: Oh, okay. Well, hopefully that makes the news cycle for more than a day.
2: I hope so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. Um well so, okay, we have your podcast, which I'm, I'm not going to butcher the name again. Um,
2: okay, it's really. Really? Question mark, exclamation mark, period. Because that's, that's, that symbolizes the, uh, the, the stages you go through of, of, of acknowledging the uh, UAP phenomena uh, of, hmm. of curiosity, shock, and acceptance.
1: Okay, that's smart.
2: That's what the punctuation represents.
1: Oh my god, that was intentional. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm g- very interesting. See, because mine has like question mark, exclamation mark, question mark, exclamation, mark, and it's really just more of like just swearing, but not swearing. really
2: yeah, funny. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this was this was the, the path that everyone goes through.
1: That's very interesting because it is there. That is true, I and mean, hopefully, yeah, we can get to the acceptance parts so of that. We can start acknowledging reality versus like, yeah, uh, not um. And then season five of Fargo is out there for people, which is yeah, yeah, critically just, acclaimed. Holy crap.
2: Great show. It's a great show.
1: Everyone. Amazing cast. Amazing cast. Everyone is raving about it. I mean, just incredible. Yeah,
2: well, Noah Hawley is one of the best writers in television, the showrunner. So, you know, and that's all the, the writers that work with him on him as well are all fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah so, yeah. And you get
1: if that's on FX. You know,
2: yeah, like on FX and and on Hulu. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's again incredible cast. Um, your character is very interesting, and you have like oh, a weird, yeah, an eye, an eye patch, right? Was that yeah, one? yeah? Must have been weird. But are people recognizing you now for that role? Which maybe that yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Well, it's it's. I I think people recognizing me just from that, but then I think a, um, a lot of people who knew me from other stuff are. I guess maybe recognizing what I look like now. Uh, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm definitely getting stopped a lot more often lately yeah. when, when I go to the grocery store and that sort of thing.
1: That's yeah, that's that's got to be wild. I'm sure you've. I mean, like you're at Cur's fans so long that you've probably had this in waves and and starts and it's yeah, that has to be strange and surreal, but also a testament to the fact that you're still you know doing this. You know, yeah,
2: no, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty surprised. <laughs> I'm, surprised, I'm surprised I am surprised got to do it at all growing up you know in Toronto I, wasn't, I didn't think I'd be in show business but the fact that i have been in show business for almost 40 years you know
1: yeah but see I mean I, I, this really just attests to just how special you, what you bring to the table is because people recognize it when you guys were doing those live shows and, and people would say that this is this is unique this is this is new this is one of a kind nobody else is doing this even Lorne Michaels my buddy, my best friend on the planet. Yeah, <laughs> he said that about about you guys. You know what I mean? Was- well,
2: he he did something that Lauren never does. He flew up and watched a show. Really? He flew to Toronto and saw a Kids in the Hall show. And Lauren does not do, Lauren does not do that. Mm. That was pretty remarkable.
1: And yeah. then he stole two of them away, right?
2: No, this is This was after that. Oh, he, he sent Al Franken up first. Uh, I think Tom Davis and Al Franken came up and uh, they, they watched us do a, our show in an empty uh, Rivoli, with no, like with no audience. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and my friend Dave Thomas was there from SCTV, was there as well. Okay. Um, and then, so they hired Mark and Bruce, went down to write for Satellite Live in 85, yeah, 85 86 season, uh, the worst season ever. Um, and-
0: You to tell them that?
2: Oh, yeah. And oh then my- the end, but oh, they knew, I mean, Lauren fired everyone after that. Oh, <laughs> my God. Uh, and then, uh, but then at, near the end of the uh, of that season, Lauren flipped to Toronto to see the kids in the hall perform together because he kept hearing that he should from people like Catherine O'Hara and Marty Short and Joe Flaherty and Oh, just and those Thomas. People- yeah. Yeah.
1: Oh, my God. Wow. Well, so
2: they-, they all. Yeah, they all kept saying you should go see these guys. So Lauren came, he did. I mean, it's pretty amazing but Lauren came, sat in a you know, really smoky backroom bar, you know, and watched us do our show.
1: Well, wow, that's incredible. Again, it speaks to the power of what you guys are doing. I mean, it's that's why you're still you're all still around and you're all still the magic still that why the show still holds up and why every time I open a container of coleslaw. I've got Dirty hounds. Mm.
2: Now, did you watch the reboot?
1: No, not yet. Don't kill me. Because I'm really bad. I don't. I, I know this is gonna sound shocking to you. I tweet a lot. So I don't actually watch a ton of TV. <laughs> because I'm actually exhausted from screens by the like, end of the day. And I'm like, I got to watch this. But then I don't. And that's that's a terrible failing on my end.
2: I need to watch I it. Mostly, I mostly just watch hockey and documentaries.
1: Yeah, see, that's good though. But that, yeah, I need to watch the reboot, and I'm gonna, I'm owning myself by admitting that I didn't yet because that's I'm fine. I'll lose all with no life.
2: <laughs> Not obligated to, but if you like the kids in the hall, no, I, it'll make you laugh.
1: I know I have to, and actually, that might be the best way to introduce my 14 year old son to it because.
2: Well, okay, all right, I'll, but I will tell you, there's a, there's a, a lot of uh, full frontal male nudity in episode one. Really. So, Phil, he's ready for that.
0: I think
1: he's seen his own full frontal male today.
2: Yeah. As long as he's as just comfortable seeing that in, in the room with his mom.
1: Oh, you know what? Um, well, that's a good question.
2: We could always skip the first episode and yeah. stream. Yeah. Or
1: I'll just watch that one. Yeah. yeah. There was, um, yeah, that might be awkward. Mm, yeah. Not like, cause the kind of thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. Cause it's me and Kevin. So, it's not something anyone's <laughs> going to enjoy.
1: Wait, 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 wait. What?
2: What? Yeah. Yeah. A, oh, wow.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. yeah. It's a spoiler. I, I've, you know, I've not totally spoiled it, but the comedy premise is the comedy premise is sound.
1: That is, wow. That's, that, that took some balls. I mean, I had to say that, right? Yes. i sure yeah. ever said that about that or in the <laughs> yeah. history of time. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, I will put that on my to do list. All right. And not mine and my son's to do list. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I thank you. That thank you so much, Dave Foley. I took your entire day. I'm pretty sure. No problem. Um, I'll,
2: I'll yeah. walk my dogs and they'll stop complaining.
1: But they're like, Who is this bitch? Why doesn't she shut up? Meanwhile, yeah. my dog is like, I'm worried. She's not breathing. She hasn't
2: moved <laughs> I once. I saw her wander in in yeah. the background. Yeah.
1: She went once. She let me pet her ass and then she was back to sleep. She's the laziest hound dog there ever was in history. Yeah. Um, but Thank you for all this time and for the no an incredible problem. conversation. All right. And, all right.
2: And and we're going to a Rangers game.
1: Yeah, I got I to gotta set that up because I'm going to change your life. I'm going to change Dave Foley's life. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to tell you how, but I'm going to make it happen. So, um, all right. Dave Foley, thank you again. Um, this concludes this episode of the Are You? I've Been Kidding Me podcast. Um, guys, I hope you really enjoy this conversation because it <laughs> is a journey. That's <laughs> oh, great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> good, because I have to pee again. You
1: to pee again. <laughs> All right, bye.
2: Are you effing kidding me? It's a production of the Political Voices Network. Please visit us at politicalvoicesnetwork.com.